Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brennan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome, welcome, welcome to our 39th episode of the Not A Cast entitled Fever Dream, an analysis of a Game of Thrones editor 10, in which Ned Stark gets his job back. And uh, yeah, I guess he has a kind of completely meaningless dream that has no bearing on anything whatsoever. Right, guys? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Of course. This episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lords Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. and Hayden J., and Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, very much. Thank you, small council, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books, that is the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. And we have a very special returning guest to the show. You may know her as Liza Arbor from Twitter and Tumblr. You may know her from her excellent podcast, Girls Gone Canon, which just did a Patreon episode last week. Uh, Every Day is Halloween, about identity in disguise, and uh, this month's episode on Dance of Dragons in Depth, When Fire and Blood Drops. Or you might know her from her excellent appearance on our episode on Sansa 2, my favorite chapter in Game of Thrones. It's Chloe Ketchum. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me again. I'm really excited to be here. Hey, so happy to have you back. It's awesome. Welcome back. Thanks. We're going to get so sad about Lyanna Stark. <laughs> Yay. This, uh, is a, this is a good chapter to have you on for specifically because of the sheer emotions about uh, <laughs> Lyanna and Ned Stark, who I know are two of your favorites. I didn't mean to take over your synopsis, Jeff, but I think I just did it. Let's get sad about Lyanna Stark. That's, yes, that's, yes, I know. It's it. it's okay. We're all going to get sad about Lyanna Stark. Well, actually, you two are going to get sad about Lyanna Stark. I'm going to fade into the background for about, you know, four or five hours, and then I'll pop back in when we're ready to talk <laughs> about it, the things I like about this chapter. But no, it, it's super awesome to have you back here. And you guys, as, as you guys all well know, Chloe is a... a Great friend of ours, as much as we banner back and forth on Twitter and Facebook and various different types of medium, we we love her to tears and we're so happy to have her back. And she has a fantastic, wonderful podcast that is doing fantastic, wonderful things in this world. Yeah, we just got to Sansa Stark a little bit ago. Uh, We do our podcast. If you haven't checked us out, if you have an extra slot in the lineup, (laughs) please feel free. I know it's hard. There are a lot of amazing podcasts out there right now in our community, but We are doing a point of view by point of view read through, which means we go Hmm. character by character where not a cast is going chapter by chapter. So we focus a lot on character motivations, analysis of that, theories around the community and, uh, you know, just uh, just us stuff. Uh, Eliana, a rhythmetric on Twitter and Glass Table Girl on Reddit is my lovely co-host. So give us a check out, of course. Hallelujah, brothers. We've both been on the show, of course. <laughs> myself for Quentin and uh, Jeff for Barriston. Yes. More relevant to this episode, I think maybe the best episode you guys have done is the one you're, you, you did on Eddard 10 and 11 in A Game of Thrones, just kind of mm-hmm. covering the depths of his characterization and how he got into it emotionally. So we're definitely standing on the shoulders of giants as far as this chapter goes. Thankfully, we have a giant here with us, so... Works out. Yeah, we were super excited to have Chloe back and all of her expertise in this chapter and about Lyanna Stark, the Danes, and all the sorts of great stuff about this chapter that make this chapter so iconic and the lexicon of A Song of Ice and Fire. And it's good to have one of the greats here talking about it with us. So thanks so much for being on, Chloe. Thanks, guys. Our uh, question this week comes from uh, Sir Manu, the Saddlemaker, another one of our distinguished guests from our episode on Brand 4, A Game of Thrones. And he asks, we know that the Battle of Ice and the Battle of Fire 
which if you're not familiar, the Battle of Ice is the struggle over Winterfell and the Crofters' village between Stannis and the Boltons, and the Battle of Fire is the struggle for the control of Marine between uh, Danny and Barristan's forces and the Slaver forces. Will be two early events in the Winds of Winter, but I'm curious as to how you think they will be laid out structurally in the book itself. Do you think we'll get a chunk of consecutive chapters that's basically one battle and then the chunk that's the other, kind of like with the Blackwater, but twice? Or do you see George writing them as concurrent events and our POVs jumping between the two battles? How would you structure it if it was up to you? Are there any key thematic similarities between the two battles that can be made evident with some thoughtful juxtaposition? As always, thanks for taking the question and keep up the excellent work. Well, thank you, man, and my friend, for the question. And Jeff, I know the the battles and the structure of the early bits of the Winds of Winter is a, a favorite topic of yours, so why don't you take it away? Yeah, it's a fantastic question, Manu, and I'm so pleased you asked a question after my own heart. That just makes me all warm inside of my cold, cold, dead heart. But so, yes, we do know a little bit of George's original intent when he was writing A Dance with Dragons. This actually came only a few months ago. Back in May 2018, George answered a question on his uh, live journal. Actually, his former live journal. It's now it's not a blog. It's on his website in which he'd said, my original intent was to end Dance with two big battles. Yes, intercutting between the two of them, each told through several different points of view. And both battles were partially written, but not complete, which was becoming the issue. Also, maybe even more to the point, not yet good enough in my estimation. Battles are bloody hard, and I wanted those to be great. So what George is saying here is that his original intent was that he planned to have these the battles of ice and fire be intercutting chapters. So you'd have a Victorian chapter followed by a Theon chapter, followed by a Barrison chapter followed by a Tyrion or Asha or Bran chapter. And so that's kind of what George's original intent was. Whether he still intends to do it is kind of up in the air, but I do lean towards the position that he plans, he still intends to do that. So when you're talking about the order for the battles, we know that George has said he plans to open the Winds of Winter with the two battles. He had said that back in 2012, whether that still is intended in 2018, again, is a little bit ambiguous, but I still think that's probably what's going to happen. So my order for the battles goes as follows. Number one, Theon won. Of course, we got in December 2011 as a sample chapter. You guys probably all well know it. It reintroduced us to Stannis, to Theon, and to the stakes and the battle upcoming. Second chapter, kind of maybe a little more controversial, is going to be Victorian's first chapter, which George read at TIFF 2012, or read partially at TIFF 2012, and he read the full thing at EasterCon uh, about a month or so later. And that chapter is going to be, hi, here's Victorian. He's stupid, LOL. Oh, and this hellhorn. Victorian is going to blow it literally, figuratively, and both. And mm-hmm. then we move on to Tyrion 1, where Savas, foreshadowing a brown, blend, brown Ben Blumstern, kind of a hard name to say, kind of quickly. Then over to Barristan 1, and if you guys have not, and you really fucking should, you should listen to the Girls Gone Canon Patreon episode, their first one, which is available on their regular feed, about the two Barristan chapters from The Winds of Winter. It is an excellent analysis. And if you guys have not read the chapters, Barristan 1 is available in the Dance of Dragons paperback version. So it's a great chapter and check it out. Uh, next chapter, I think it's going to be Asha 1, the one that we saw the partial of, what George was writing in 2014. The phrase arrive in battle, they've killed Moore's Umber, and the battle commences seemingly at the end of that short little section of the chapter we saw. Then I think we're going to move on to someone really interesting, and that is Bran. I think Bran is going to give us a bird's eye point of view of the battle. So... This is kind of interesting because George had a brand chapter that was written, seemingly written at the end of A Dance of Dragons that he cut at the last minute, like literally a few days before he submitted his final manuscript to his publishers. So I don't know if that's the actual brand chapter, but I do imagine that we're going to be seeing a brand chapter 
because we know that those birds outside of Stannis's camp, seemingly Bran is skin changing those birds. And it'd be great to see an actual bird's eye view of the battle. I think that would be a fantastic, wonderful way to, to showcase the battle. Then we return back to Marine, Barristan 2, which again, listen to the Girls Gone Canada episode. Barristan goes apeshit on Young Kai, aka Let Barristan Be Barristan. On over to then after that, Tyrion 2, which is in the World of Ice and Fire app. Shit's going bad for Young Kai. The second sons and windblown turn cloak on the Yunkish. Then we get to the chapters that haven't been published yet in any form. And I think we're probably only actually going to get two more battle chapters. And they are Victorian 2, where Victorian blows the horn and he blows the battle for the Ironborn. And the Victorian receives his dragon and the fire that awaits him. And then Barristan 3, where we're going to see the Skahaz or Harpy betrayal, something that Ammon and I have uh, competing perspectives on. If you want to, again, listen to our Barristan wins a winner uh, episode, which is on a regular feed. And then I think really after that, the battles are going to be over and George really has to catch the story up to where the rest to where the battles end. So we're going to be leaving Winterfell Marine for a, I would say like a dozen, maybe even more chapters. Probably pick back up with Tyrion, the Great Pyramid of Marine, and get the aftermath of the battle. And then maybe a Theon post battle of Ice chapter where Stannis is having his men dress up and Frey and Karstark surcoats for some odd reason. I I don't. I, this is kind of interesting. I really don't think Stannis will take Winterfell until midway or even like towards the later part of the book. Uh, and I think that's going to be something that'll be. Uh, one of the closing portions of Stannis's arc is him taking Winterfell. And I think ultimately, I think we'll start to see the Northmen abandon Stannis at the end of his arc. And that's kind of seemingly at the very end of the Winds of Winter, we'll start to see, you know, the ramifications of Rob's will being revealed and what happens after that. So I've been talking for a fucking minute. So you guys go ahead and give me your thoughts and give Manu your thoughts on how you think this battle is going to be structured. No, I, I agree for the most part. I think we're we're going to see bouncing back and forth. That makes the most sense, especially since these battles seem kind of linked in his mind that he gave them the name. The battles of ice and fire suggests he's thinking about them as two sides of the same coin. So it does make a certain amount of sense for him to jump back and forth. I totally agree about where kind of Tyrion, Victorian, and Barristan are going to end up by the end of that first chunk uh, with Victorian dead, Barristan dealing with betrayal, whether he survives it or not. And Tyrion kind of winding on top with the the second sons and the windblown. I don't know if I agree about Bran being in a POV on the Battle hmm. of Ice. I feel like the the, ch- the chapter that Martin cut has to involve the Jojen paste somehow. Like that reveal yeah. has to come kind of immediately in Bran's story, given that it just just occurred. So I feel like the Bran chapter might have something to do with that, and maybe he fills us in about his perspective later, or we just we just see the birds get involved. But uh, personally, I think we might just we might just see the battle through Asha's eyes. But I do love the idea of picking up with Theon, observing Stannis dress his men in those those uh, those surcoats for no no given reason at, no the, reason. at that exact moment. No reason. Yeah, just just in happenstance. I like that idea a lot. So I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised if we see just that. Right now, we're just getting into the Blackwater episodes and our Sansa chapters. So this kind of. I don't know, it really rings very Blackwater-esque, right? You have all these things happening at once in all these places, just like in dance. I think that's something I really love about dance is that it kind of calls back to that feeling when you're at the Blackwater in A Clash of Kings. I actually kind of like the idea of a Bran chapter. I don't know if it's right or not, because none of us do, obviously, not out yet. I I would even argue with Emmett on this one that I think a Bran chapter is necessary, especially to see the other side of Mm. Theon seeing Bran. In yeah. Dance with Dragons. I think there's a great mirror there. If not, at least to give some vision into the battle at Winterfell. 
I think Bran could see some of it. I don't think it would be a full-on war chapter, so I'll compromise between you two. <laughs> but I, I think that's interesting. I think that's what's so great about The Winds of Winter is it's not only the structure when it comes to the battles, but it's also when it comes to thematics, right? It's the build-up. It's the action. It's all of these guns finally going off to really yeah. just push us into a dream of spring, right? Like, this is... This is where it all builds up. This is the climax. This is like a huge crescendo in the story that gets all the characters where they need to be on the playing field. Even when you look at Sansa in the Vale, it's giving her room to rally the Vale troops to go home to Winterfell. There's something happening in every corner of our world. Yeah, I, I totally agree that uh, about that. And I do think Bran's chapter, the way it seemingly was originally structured, was it was supposed to come right after Jon Snow's assassination. Uh, the one that was cut from A Dance of Dragons. So I feel, and, and I could be wrong about this, but I feel like what George originally intended was to have that chapter kind of give Bran kind of another gut punch as he, and also reveal Jotian Pace as well as give, have the gut punch of having uh, John, him feeling John's death. I feel like that's something that would be strongly hinted at. Um, I, I think it would be curious whether George might kind of rewrite that chapter, maybe intermix it with some of the Battle of Ice stuff. I, I don't know. I, I think it could be in any number of things. And it's it, that's one of the interesting things about The Winds of Winter is that we know enough to kind of satiate ourselves and kind of like kind of like the the appetizer, but we really need the meal at some point, you know, because to kind of like put all these theories aside and actually get us into whether Bran's going to be, be, be a POV for the Battle of Ice, what the actual outcome of the Battle of Fire is going to be, whether Barristan is going to be betrayed and die at the Battle of Fire or die shortly thereafter. These are things that I, uh, I as, my, as cool as it is to do all of the really fun uh, theorizing, I do want to kind of get some answers at some point. Someday. But of course, someday. I mean, my thing about Bran is like, Bran is, has to be kind of involved in all these other storylines in a tangential capacity. Whether you're talking about uh, the Battle of Ice, he shows up in Arya's dreams in her released Winds of Winter chapter. He's probably going to be involved in the Old Town storyline in some capacity, given that Sam is working with the Ravens and that Bran has previously encountered Sam. Yes. But I feel like Bran's chapters themselves have to focus on all the stuff going on with Bran and the children and the cave and the others and Blood Raven and Jojen. Like, there's enough to focus on in Bran's storyline that I think his involvement in the other storylines can be better told through those other POVs. That's but fair. Having, having said that, Manuel, also the great question about the themes of the battles. So, uh, Jeff, what do you think? What do you think the Battle of Fire and Ice are going to mean for us? Yeah, you know, it, the Battles of Ice and Fire are, are interesting, right? In that we don't, <laughs> you know, like the Battle of the Blackwater was a really fascinating set piece that George orchestrated in Clash, in which. I mean, even if you're reading it for the first time, I guess you're sort of supporting Stannis, but you also have Tyrion who is, you know, fighting on the royalist side, fighting on behalf of Joffrey, and you don't want to see him die. So there's a real genuine kind of like, who should win? And there's going to be consequences for who's going to win. The Battles of Ice and Fire are different in that no one wants the fucking Boltons to win the Battle of Ice and defeat Stannis Baratheon. No one fucking wants Yunkai to win the Battle of Fire and, and put the slaves back into their chains sort of thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that George isn't trying to complicate it and kind of make it a bit more ambiguous than the seemingly the good guys versus the bad guys thing. So George has this great quote, which he said to CBC back in 2012, where he says, war is so central to fantasy, and yet it's these bloodless wars where the heroes are killing unending orcs and the heroes are not being killed. I think if you're going to write about war and violence, then show the cost. Show how ugly it is. Show both sides of it, though. 
There's also the other side, which sometimes gets me in trouble from the opposite side of the political spectrum, that is the hippies, the glory of war. Those of us who are opposed to war tend to try to pretend it doesn't exist, but if you read the ancient sources, people are always talking about the banners that, quote, stirred the heart. I think that if you're going to write about that period, then you should reflect honestly what's what it's about and capture both sides of it. So I thought about this quote a little bit and trying to frame an answer to Manu's question about the thematics of the battle. And I was rereading some of the Barrison 2 Winds of Winter's Sample chapter recently, and it kind of hit me what George might be talking about in reference to the battles, and that you can't read the Barristan 2 chapter and come away not hooting and hollering and Barristan does is, it's like Baylor, Breakspear, and Prince Magar, the hammer and the anvil. We have them. We have them. But yet, I can't also help but read the summary where Barristan is about to attack the Yunkish line and notices that the slave soldiers known as the herons are there. And he thinks, quote, the slaves chosen to be the herons were freakishly tall before they were put on stilts and they wear pink scales and feathers and steel beaks. And, you know, I kind of feel sad about that. They didn't choose to be here to to fight for Yunkai. They're here because they're slaves and they were forced into the army by the Yunkish. And I get that Barrison's making the smart tactical decision attacking them, but he's making that decision because the slaves have made the Herons a grotesque and horrific part of their army. And they're going to battle wearing freaking stilts and beaks on their faces for Rallor's sake. And Barristan and his squires and the Stormcrows just fucking slaughter them. And really, it's a huge, huge gut punch when you consider that Danny's original mission in Slaver's Bay was to free the slaves. And now her hand... Barristan is killing a whole lot of them in order to win this battle of fire. So I think that George is having kind of a both side, showcasing both sides of the battle of fire here. I think it's also going to be kind of like a fuck yeah moment, like when Stannis sinks the phrase in the in the ice lakes. But at the same time, you're going to be watching dudes drowning underneath of ice and like drowning in their armor sort of thing. Like that stuff, as much as you're like, yeah, they they kind of deserve it for the Red Wedding. At the same time, you're like, but you're watching people die in the worst, most awful, horrific way possible. So it's kind of, you're supposed to feel ambiguous about battles and wars and the violence. And you're supposed to, and George wants us to see that violence and also see the glory that you can kind of feel, the exultation that you can feel in that. So I think that's probably my answer for the thematics that George has in mind for the battles. But I guess we'll have to see how the outcome kind of presents itself as we get the Winds of Winter next week. The High Lords play their games of thrones. Yeah, I really couldn't put it in better than that, Jeff. I think that's perfect. That is the both sides of the coin there in that Barristan chapter summary. Uh, sadly, we don't have the full chapter at this point. There's only a summary available, but... Once yeah. again, wins the winner next week. <laughs> next week, man. I mean, the saddest part about all of that is like not only the the slaves that were chosen to be herons, like, yeah, they were on their stilts and they wore pink scales and feathers and steel beaks, but they wore chains. They were chained to each other in yes. this battle in Barristan too. They're all chained together in a big long row. Like, can we just talk about Lil Pigeon? Let's talk about Lil Lil Pigeon. This is our hour-long segment on Not a Cast podcast featuring the hallelujah boys and chloe <laughs> and <laughs> i'm here to talk about little pigeon no i don't really have more than that but it's, it's messed up right like that's messed up it's not right it's not a. it's just like how you know these boys just go off to war it doesn't matter whose side they really fight for in the end they're not fighting for a person they're fighting for their own lives and their own identity yeah yep that's yep (laughs) superbly said and you think you see that in quentin's story as well not only with him but with the green boys he kills outside astapor so i think that's a repeated theme not only in the series as a whole but especially in the fight for slaver's bay and the dance with dragons true that true that so thank you manu for the question it's a fantastic question you got a lot of thoughts from 
from all of us, but especially for me. So I appreciate the ability to speak <laughs> on, on, on this episode. We'll let you. Oh, yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, so thank you for the question. And we're also wanted to announce something kind of cool for you guys. So as we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, Emmett and I are planning to go to the George R. Martin event in Jersey City on the 19th of November 2018, where we're going to get signed copies of Fire and Blood Volume 1. No big, no big. You know, we're just going to meet George and get signed copies of his books and do all those sorts of things. But one of the cool things we wanted to announce is that we are planning to do a live episode of the Nanacast podcast alongside of our friends from the Girls Gone Canon podcast, in which we're going to be talking about George's appearance. And we, I'm sure, I'm sure Chloe has about 15 questions, (laughs) 14 and a half of them related to Ashara Dane, but we're going to be talking about some of the questions that George answers. And when he announces the wins of winner, which of course he's going to be doing at this event, we'll be able to give you our live reactions to it. So Stay in touch. More details will be forthcoming. But in addition, kind of another cool thing, in addition to the Girls Gone Canon podcast being there, we'll also have Matt, a.k.a. Joe the Magician, who you guys have probably seen some of his videos and essays on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit and on YouTube. Uh, He's also going to be joining us and he'll be talking about the event as well. So look forward to that. And I'm looking forward to chatting and hanging out with all you guys and gals that night. It's been too long. It really has. It's going to be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Last time I saw you guys was Ice and Fire Con 2017, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's been so long. So it's time. This is way overdue. I'm excited. I just moved out here to the East Coast. So I think some of these things might be happening uh, more often. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed indeed. Yeah. But yeah. So thanks for the question, Manu. Look forward to that Ice and Fire, not Ice and Fire. <laughs> Look forward to that Georgia event at, in Jersey City in a few weeks. But now... The main event, probably the chapter I've gotten, we've gotten a number of questions and comments of of people looking forward to us talking about this chapter. So now Mm -hmm. here is the synopsis for a Game of Thrones, Eddard 10. Fanpool wakes Ned Stark up from an inconsequential dream to, did I skip something Uh, uh, in the synopsis? What? what, what, Yeah, you did. did, Try again, Jeff. Try again. Try again. Oh. Oh, right, right. The, the, yeah, okay, the dream. Right, okay, I guess we should talk about that dream, huh? Mm-hmm. He dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks and a tower long fallen and Lyanna in her bed of blood. So starts one of the most iconic and consequential chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Ned Stark dreams of his friends riding with him, Martin Cassell, Jory's father, Theo, Theo Wool, a faithful clansman, Ethan Glover, his brother Brandon Squire, Sir Mark Risewell, a gentle and kind man, Howland Reed, a Cranach man, and Lord Dustin, Barbary Dustin's husband. He'd known these men so well by that point, knew their faces, and he pledged never to forget them. But now, 15 years later, their faces had faded to shadowy wraiths, their horses into mist. They were seven facing three, and the dream as it had been in life, yet these were no ordinary three. No, they were not. They were men of the King's Guard, and unlike his own companions, Ned remembers their faces oh so clear. There, Arthur Dane smiling sadly. Here, Oswell went on one knee, sharpening his blade. And between them both, Sir Gerald Hightower, the White Bull, LC of the King's Guard. And look, so as much as you guys think I should just keep on summarizing, you're not the fucking boss of me. I'm not gonna, and you can't make me. This is going to be a radio radio theater moment, everyone. I need all hands on deck for this. I'm the narrator, and Ned, obviously, because he's a hero. Chloe, you get to be fucking Arthur Dane and Lyanna Stark, of course. And Emmett, you're going to be Gerald Hightower and Oswald Went. 
Are we ready for this moment? I suppose. I love that I'm the girl. Why am I always the girl? Well, because there's one female part. I know, part. I'm ready. Female. Let's go. Okay. <clears throat> I looked for you on the trident. We were not there, Sir Gerald answered. Woe to the usurper if we had been, added Sir Oswell. In King's Landing fell, Sir Jamie slew your king with a golden sword, and I wondered where you were. Far away, Sir Gerald said. Our heiress would yet sit the Iron Throne, and our false brother would burn in seven hells. I came down on Storm's End to lift the siege, and the Lords Tyrell and Redwine dipped their banners, and all their knights bent their knee to pledge us fealty. I was certain you would be among them. Our knees do not bend easily, said Sir Arthur Dane. Sir Willem Darius fled to Dragonstone with your queen and Prince Viserys. I thought you might have sailed with him. Sir Willem is a good man and true, said Sir Oswell. But not of the king's guard, Sir Gerald pointed out. The king's guard does not flee. Then, or now, said Sir Arthur, he donned his helm. We swore a vow, explained old Sir Gerald. Ned's rays moved up beside him, shadow swords in their hands. They were seven against three. And now it begins, said Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning. He unsheathed dawn and held it with both hands. The blade was pale as milk glass, alive with light. A light no. with oh, life. A light with life works too, honestly. No, I did it, it fine the very first time I did it on Girls Gone Canon, so. The actual canonical time, that's true. That's true. No, said Ned with sadness in his voice. Now it ends. They came together in a rush of steel and shadow. Ned could hear Lyanna screaming. Edard! A storm of rose petals blew across a blood-streaked sky, as blue as the eyes of death. Lord Edard! I promise, Ned whispered. Lyanna, I promise. Mm. <sighs> I've never practiced that. Well done. Ned, <laughs> never... She's never whispered that to a mirror. Every little girl whispers to a mirror how she wants to grow up to say, I'm not a cast. Lord Eddard. (laughs) True. True facts. Truth that. So, wow. Good job, guys. I appreciate it. I kind of came with that on the fly while I was doing the synopsis. So I appreciate you guys jumping in. It was very cool. My my skin is kind of like tingling (laughs) right now. Um, Of course. But yeah, no, holy shit. I mean, like, I don't know, I don't know how many times I read that part of the chapter. It just makes me feel the real emotions like a real human being. Like it it just does. All right. So have we wiped enough tears from our eyes? Can we get back to it, Urex? I guess. All right. Well, the last quote unquote Lord Eddard may not have been Lana Stark. Sorry, Chloe. It may have been Veon Poole. He calls for Ned again and he wakes up after having been out for Six days, six days, I think, six days since the brawl with Jamie's men, and his leg still hurt like hell. Van offers Ned water and Ned drinks, thinking it tastes like honey, but that sweetness is soured when Van tells Ned that Robert Baratheon has left instructions that when Ned woke, he wanted to chit-chat. Fuck. Ned tells Van to let it wait until the morning, but no such luck. The king's instructions were clear. Ned curses Robert in hopes that the message wakes Big Bob up, but first summon... Jory's about to say Jory. Ned's about to say Jory, but then he remembers, summon the captain of my guard. The new captain of Winterfell Guard, Alan, steps in. Ned asks after the status, status of things, and it's all gone south. Jamie's gone, probably headed for Castle Rock to join up with Tywin. Oh, and everyone knows that Catelyn has taken Tyrion prisoner. Ned asks after Sansa and Arya, and Alan informs him that they've been at Ned's bedside day and night with Sansa praying in Arya in fury mode. Alan had never seen such anger in a girl before witnessing Arya's reaction to what happened to Ned and his men. 
Ned tells Alan to keep the girls safe, fearing that it's only the beginning. No shit, Ned. Alan says no harm will come to the girls and that he'd stake his life on that, because of course he would. And what about Jory and the men who died on the streets? They're with the Silent Sisters. Jory would probably have wanted to be buried by his grandfather. Now for a mini dose of sadness. Ned thinks that's probably true, as Martin Cassell had been buried at the Tower of Joy. Ned had taken the tower down stone by stone and built eight cairns on the ridge. Rhaegar had called it the Tower of Joy, but it was only a bitter memory for Ned. They had been seven against three, yet only two had lived to ride away. Only Ned and Howland Reed had survived the battle, and it's not a good sign that Ned is dreaming that dream again after so many years. Ned thanks Alan for his service, but Veonpol returns to inform Ned that Robert and Cersei are outside the door. Uh-oh. Ned pushes himself upward as pain shoots through his leg. Cersei's appearance was unexpected and totally unwelcome. Ned orders Veon to send the king and queen in, and the motley couple marches in. Robert had actually dressed, though, and of course he had brought a cup of wine. Cersei, because she's Cersei, is wearing her tiara. Eddard apologizes for not rising into the presence, but Robert doesn't care. Would you like some wine, Ned? Ned says, sure, a small cup. His head's still not right from the milk of the cup from the milk of the poppy he's been drinking. A man in your place should count himself fortunate that his head is still on his shoulders, Cersei happily declares. Robert tells her to shut her mouth and then asks Ned if his leg still hurts. Yeah, it hurts. But Ned's not about to admit weakness in front of Cersei. Robert says that Pycelle had told him that the wound would heal, but Ned, you know what Catelyn has done, right? Yeah, he knows. Catelyn is blameless because she has only done one thing wrong in her entire life. You see, Ned had ordered Tyrion arrested. He lies. Well, Robert's not happy about that, and Cersei less so. By what right do you lay hands on my blood, Cersei demands. Who do you think that you are? Why, Ned's the hand of the king, and he keeps the king's peace. You were the hand of the king, but now... Robert tells her to shut up again. Ned answers Robert's question, but he's also displeased. But Robert's also displeased with Ned. Keep the king's peace, you say. Is this how you keep my peace, Ned? Seven men are dead. No, it's actually eight, Cersei corrects. Another Lannister bro had died in the morning. Robert grumbles a bit about the troubles in his realm and declares that he's tired of it all. When Ned tries to tell Robert that Catelyn had good reason to imprison Tyrion, Robert cuts him off. I will not have it. To hell with your reasons, Ned. You will command her to release the dwarf at once and you will make your peace with Jamie. Uh, no, Robert. Three of Ned's men have been murdered at Jamie's command. He's not going to forget that. My brother was not the cause of this quarrel, Cersei retorts. Ned was drunk and coming from a brothel, you see, and attacked Jamie. Yeah, that's the story. You know me better than that, Robert, Ned replies. Ask Lord Baelish if you doubt me. He was there. Well, that slimy fuck known as Creepyfinger hadn't backed Ned up, of course. Littlefinger's story is that he'd ridden off before the fighting had started, after Ned had indeed gone to a brothel, and hadn't really seen, and Littlefinger hadn't really seen anything. Oh boy, Ned's angry now. He wasn't in a brothel to frequent sex workers. He was there to see Robert's daughter, who, by the way, looks exactly like you, Robert, and looks exactly like the, your first bastard that was born in the Vale, Maya Stone. Ned looks over to Cersei, whose face is an icy mask. Robert's not happy either. He thought that Barra's mother had more sense. Uh, how could she have more sense, Robert? The girl was maybe 15, and she's completely in love with you, you goddamn moron. Aren't you like 35? Gross, immoral, and stupid, dude. Mm -hmm. Robert tries to do his not-for-the-queen's-ears routine, but Ned's not done. Nothing he says is going to make Cersei or anyone happy. Jamie has fled, and he must be brought to justice. Robert tells him no, that the quarrel is finished. Is 
this your notion of justice, Ned and Tones? If so, he's glad he's not the hand of the king anymore. And then Cersei decides to make things worse. If any man had dared speak to a Targaryen as he had spoken to you. Wait, 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 Robert interrupts. I'm Ares in this scenario. No, you're supposed to be the king, Cersei corrects. But really, what's up, my lord husband? Stark dishonors you, takes your in-laws hostage, and you stand there like a big baby asking if Ned's leg is hurt. Robert tells her for the third, fourth, I don't remember. He just tells her again to shut up, which again causes her Cersei to do the exact opposite. What a jape the gods have made us to. By all rights, you ought to be in skirts and me in male. Oh, no. <laughs> Shit. Robert purples with rage and backhands her hard, sending her spiraling towards the table behind her. She hits the table and bounces off and falls, a red mark spreading across her face. Ned thinks that by tomorrow, a purple bruise will cover half her face. I shall wear this as a badge of honor, Cersei announces. Wear it in silence or I'll honor you again, Robert growls. Robert orders Sir Marin Trant to take Cersei away, but which he does so silently. Hmm, Arya's Kingsguard much? Yeah. Robert complains that it's not really his fault that he just brutally smacked his wife. She pushes him to the, you see, she pushes him to do these things, but it's not kingly for him to hit her. I was always so strong. No one could stand before me. No one. How do you fight someone if you can't hit them? Confused, the king shook his head. Rhaegar. Rhaegar won, damn him. I killed him, Ned. I drove the spike right through that black armor into his black heart, and he died at my feet. They made up songs about it, yet somehow he still won. He has Lyanna now, and I have her. Ned tries to talk to Robert, but he's done with talking. He's off to go on a perfectly normal, not at all dangerous hunt, where no one will be out to kill him in the Kingswood. Whatever Ned wants to say can wait. What? No, Ned'll be gone by the time he gets back if the gods are good. Robert had commanded him to turn to Winterfell, after all. Don't you remember, Robert? Robert retrieves the hand's clasp from his pocket and hands it to Ned. The gods are seldom good. Like it or not, you're my hand. Damn you. I forbid you to leave. Ned takes the clasp, thinking he has no choice. No, Ned. Run, Ned. His leg throbs and he feels helpless as the child. He tries one last thing. The Targaryen girl. God damn it, Ned. Can't you see I'm done with talking, Robert groans? It's done. The deed is done. When Ned asks why Robert won him his hand if he's not going to listen to him, Robert gets into good old boy Robert mode. Why? Why not? Someone has to rule this damnable kingdom. Put on the badge, Ned. It suits you. And if you ever throw it in my face again, I swear to you, I'll pin the damn thing on Jamie Lannister. Ouch. And that, my friends, Romans and Countrymen, is a Game of Thrones editor 10. One of those chapters that just stays with you forever, really. I mean, if we're being honest, obviously the best Ned chapter until his final one, in my opinion. And that's my take on AO. But now I'm going to recede into the background for about nine, 10, 15 hours and (laughs) let Emmett and Chloe get chatty Cathy for and get sad for a long minute here. So take it away, boy and girl. I love that line about Robert where he talks about when he was younger and it just brings to mind, especially in a Game of Thrones with Sansa and like Sandor, when they're having the discussion about Gregor, no one could withstand him. That's Robert in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whew, where to begin with this? I mean, like Chloe and Eliana said on their episode on this chapter, it's kind of intimidating to talk about Eddard 10. We're only staring down the barrel of the most iconically capital F fantasy right? scene of our lifetimes here. 
Uh, the Tower of Joy sequence, obviously, is absolutely critical to both the backstory and endgame of A Song of Ice and Fire. It ties the Roberts Rebellion era to the modern day, arguably more than any other scene in the books. It serves as the Rosetta Stone for Ned Stark's overall character arc, and it's just an incredibly well-written scene that is frequently held up as the one to show people who are considering reading the series. It's your gateway drug to A Song of Ice and Fire, so to speak. But before we get into all that Edward 10 is, I think it's worth noting one thing that it's not. It's not actually representative of the series as a whole. Most of A Song of Ice and Fire doesn't feel like this. The strict rhythm of the dialogue with neither snarky asides nor revealing inner monologue. The lush romanticism of the imagery with no gritty deconstruction. The Tower of Joy sequence is written to stand out from everything around it, just as the other's attack in the prologue is meant to haunt the back of your mind as you read the political machinations that follow. It enhances the sense that what we're seeing in this chapter is a secret. It's something that both Ned and George R. R. Martin have kept hidden from us. So first thoughts, gentlemen. I've got a lot of first thoughts on this chapter after rereading it for what I presume could be the 10 millionth time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think my favorite Mm -hmm, thing mm -hmm. about this and everything that we've uh, done to do this chapter today is that today I literally sent you guys a message saying, "Okay, now listen to this song. And while you listen to this song, I want you to go read this passage from Uttered 10 and then go back and read this passage <laughs> from Uttered 1 and then tell me how you feel in depth. Like, that's that's how we got ready for this chapter. So I think that's important to this whole entire episode. It's This chapter is actually the penultimate buildup of all of Eddard's trauma. It's chapter 10 out of 15, right? We've been removed from this so many times, and the way George writes about it is simple but still keeps you interested. We all assume we know what happened to Liana, right? We all have a theory. Everybody subscribes to a theory. You've got an idea. You've got like a little hunch that says, this is what I think. But we don't actually know how Ned knew or what happened until we get to this chapter. We get hints peppered throughout the books, ramping up from Eddard 1. We get it in Eddard 1 in the passage where he could hear her still at times. Promise me she had cried in a room that smelled of blood and roses. And of course, at the end of that chapter, that he had remembered the way she had smiled then, how tightly her fingers had clutched his as she gave up her hold on life, the rose petals spilling from her palm, dead and black. That was in Eddard's first chapter. That means it's important to him, to his character, and to his arc. And of course, there's the line where he says, I bring her flowers when I can. Liana was fond (laughs) of flowers. I mean, those are two huge telltales, and it continues to pepper through. You get it in the Sansa chapter where Arya brings Eddard flowers. You get it in Catelyn 2 when she talks about how Ned had carried Sir Arthur's sword back to his young sister who awaited him in a castle called Starfall after slaying him in single combat. It leads into Eddard 4 where he thinks about dead, sweet, foul flowers on a grave when Varys leaves his powder stains on Ned's sleeve. And of course, the chapter you guys just did that precedes this a little bit ago where Ned meets a royal king's bastard, so to speak. Littlefinger shook the rain from his hair and laughed. Now I see, Lord Aaron learned that his grace had filled the bellies of some whores and fishwives, and for that he had to be silenced. Small wonder, allow a man like that to live, and next he's like to blurt out the sun rises in the east. There was no answer Ned Stark could give to that but a frown. For the first time in years, he found himself remembering Rhaegar Targaryen. He wondered if Rhaegar had frequented brothels. Somehow, he thought not. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, that last line there about Rhaegar really gets at the 
disillusionment and fall from grace, which, as we've been saying, are such strong themes in Ned's chapters. And this really is the ultimate example of that, that the romance and, and glory of his backstory and Robert's rebellion and uh, Liana's, uh, you know, relentless kind of glory in life and being her own self, that's all rotted like rose petals in this chapter. Ned's flashback to Liana in Eddard 9, as Chloe was saying, is clearly the, the kind of the appetizer to Eddard 10's entree both in the mournful focus on her, as Jeff said, the opening line, he dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks, a tower long fallen, and Liana in her bed of blood. <laughs> but it's also, Eddard 9 was also kind of the precursor to Eddard 10 in terms of this tone of disillusioned romanticism, which you also see in that opening paragraph. And Ned had known their faces, his companions' faces, as well as he knew his own once. But the years leech at a man's memories, even those he has vowed never to forget. So that, that promise to always remember your friends, always remember your youth, that time together, that's that's faded away. And now we're kind of left with, with middle age, which is such a strong theme throughout Ned's story and Robert's story and a lot of uh, kind of veterans of Robert's Rebellion, as we'll get into in this series as we go. You're just this kind of backstory which seemed glorious at the time, turned really wrong and poisonous, and now it just haunts you. Yeah, it's kind of it's, – it's interesting. You guys have brought up something that I never thought about before and that you talked about the line from Editor 9 – where Ned thinks about Rhaegar for the first time as that being the appetizer to what we see in Edder 10, I do have to mm. wonder, that's that's Ned's one of Ned's la- final thoughts before his confrontation with Jamie and the little fight that ensues. And I do kind of wonder, you know how it's interesting the way that dreams work, right? You could take a stray line of dialogue from something that happened four days ago and that becomes a full dream or an event that occurred years and years ago that you relive. You have to wonder whether Ned's thoughts of Rhaegar is something that triggered his subconscious to then kind of spring into action and kind of bring out the Tower of Joy, something that he has consciously tried not to think of for 15 years now. And he has... Now it's now it's being brought to the fore by Littlefinger's japes, and now he's he, he's remembering Rhaegar, and then that leads him to him fighting after Jamie going unconscious, and then remembering the Tower of Joy, and remembering the sequence of events leading from Rhaegar and Lyanna to the events at the Tower at the Tower of Joy. Yeah, it's a contrast to his investigation of what John Aaron was up to and what the Lannisters are up to, and that he's trying to find something out. This is something he really doesn't want to think about. This is something he's trying not to investigate, not to uncover, to keep locked in the back of his head, because he's flashing back to the moment he lost his innocent faith in dreams and songs. When we did Edward Nine, we were talking about how he said to Lyanna, Robert's going to be a different man after he's married, just like the kind of Sansa-esque belief and the kind of the transformative power of love and all the chivalric tropes. This is when they really died for him. And, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire is always, always about this fall from grace, the the moment all the smiles died, to use a quote relevant to Ned and Lyanna's story. From the Knights of Summer and the Clash of Kings, to Quentin's Quest and A Dance with Dragons, to The Long Night, when we finally get to that in the series. That's the ultimate moment all the smiles died. And this chapter, I mean, uh, you could argue that this is Martin kind of cutting to the core of that theme. I mean, it's literally about joy coming crashing down. Yep. It's very, it's very subtle, George. Very, very, very <laughs> subtle symbolism there. Yeah, and Rhaegar named this tower. I mean, there's nothing more on the nose that it was, you know, Rhaegar's joy and uttered sorrow. <laughs> yep, oh, perfectly said. I mean, Lyanna is herself really... When you look at how she's presented as a youth, when you look at her love for Rhaegar's songs and her kind of innocent belief in upholding uh, her her father's bonds like she herself is the fantasy reader forced to grow up too quickly a la both Sansa and Arya yeah that's terrific that's that's great stuff 
Yeah, absolutely. Sansa is that part, as I've said before, of Lyanna that, you know, that loves the songs, that loves the crown prince, where Arya is the one that wants to fight and has that uh, that slowly simmering wolf blood when it comes to that. You know, she wants a sword where Sansa wants her agency. And it, it, it's interesting how Lyanna is the parts of what Ned loves and what Ned also hates, what killed her in his eyes and what kept her thriving. Yeah, beautiful, willful, and dead before her time. He loved the beauty and the willfulness, but now he's thinking to himself, oh, is that what led to her being dead before her time? How do I how do I hold on to those values? How do I hold on to those songs, the innocence, everything I loved when I've been brought up against the reality that it's mortal and it's flawed and it doesn't always work out? How do I hold on to both of these things? And I think as such, Liana's bed of blood is there to undercut the intensely vivid high fantasy trappings of this scene. Because as the scene starts out, it's like the just the the ultimate fantasy stained glass window, like the knights and their swords and the rhythm of the dialogue. But then what does all that amount to? What is it all protecting? What is it all orbiting? It's a young girl dying, frightened in her bed. So the Tower of Joy sequence is expressing that this is what making a fantasy messiah protagonist really looks like, and it's devastating. So it's the it's the meeting point of blood and roses, to borrow that quote that Chloe said from Ned's first <laughs> chapter. It's the equivalent of the bloody smear on a smiley face image that defines Watchmen. Yes. It takes like, you know, the smiley face, the symbol of youth and innocence and naive Superman comics, and then just drops that little bit of blood on it, and that changes the whole picture. It's not it's not just naive romanticism, it's not just grim dark deconstruction. What makes this chapter so powerful is that it's the meeting point between the two. Yeah, and to get kind of even more into that whole genre fantasy thing, we have to talk about the three Kingsguard knights that are there at the Tower of Joy. Because in A Song of Ice and Fire, when we meet the Kingsguard knights that are currently standing guard over Joffrey and Tommen, these are not the same types of dudes that were there 15 years ago. These guys were the epitome of the knightly chivalric traditions that dominated Westeros before the end of Robert's Rebellion. Yeah, it's the, you know, the ye old times when knights were true. This is kind of how Ned talks about the Kingsguard of that era. It's how, of course, Sansa talks about the heroes of the songs she loves so much. In order for the deconstruction to stick the tragedy landing, in order for us to care about the dreams falling apart into, into blood and black roses, Martin really does have to sell that shiny fantasy surface as compelling. And he really does in this scene. The three Kingsguards stand out as just medieval fantasy paragons, even more than when the Undying project themselves as like classic fantasy kings and wizards. This, even more than that, this is like the image of, of chivalric tropes. Yet these were no ordinary three, as Martin describes them, like they're heroic gunslingers or samurai. I mean, this is reaching past, back, is it, this is reaching back past Frodo and Conan the Barbarian to the source material of Western fantasy, which is, of course, Arthurian legends. Again, yeah. it's not very subtle. Literally, one of these dudes is named Arthur. With the <laughs> magical sword. Which, Wait a second. part of me, with, exactly. With a, with a fancy magical sword. Part of me wonders, like, if this isn't some, some supremely ballsy move on George's part. Where he's, he's like, okay, Arthur is like the big protagonist, hero, messiah figure of those legends. But in my story, the, a guy named Arthur with a sword is just going to be guarding the messiah. He's not even going to be the main character. So if you think <laughs> Arthur's special, wait till you see Johnny Snow. Who knows if that's what Martin's intending, but it feels almost like he's saying, like, here's Arthur, but then he's just going to be a step below the real main character in my story. This is the step I'm taking beyond Arthurian fiction. I could be projecting, but that's what it feels like to me. No, I, I like that. I like the fact that the names mean something. Because, I mean, think about Arthur Dane. Like, the the name Arthur is the King of England 
or the King of the Britons, if whatever story you want to you want to go with in terms of Arthurian legend, is such a unique and compelling name. And the same thing goes in A Song of Ice and Fire. Do we know any other characters named Arthur in the story besides Arthur Dane? I'm, I'm pretty sure the answer is no. Maybe Chloe might know better than me on that on that point. No, you're correct. There's uh, the biggest name characters. I mean, not in a sub character or main character. And I mean, you're looking at like it. it it's a little very on the nose. It's like George Arthur, you know, Arthur Dane, who helped in stealing Guinevere. Let's, right. let's be real. Exactly. But then you have him guarding John, and to, to stay on the name topic, John is one of the more common names. I mean, he's not Pate, obviously, but he's like, you got John Connington, you've got John Aaron, you've got a freaking sellsword in the Golden Company named John, I think. I can't remember his exact name. It's, it's spelled a little bit differently. And I think it's interesting in that he's... Arthur Dane in the story, I think it's a fantastic point that Emmett brings up that Arthur Dane in the story is guarding the Messiah figure, the messianic figure in the story. And he's guarding a messianic figure that has a very common name. Granted, it's the name that Ned gives him. And, you know, but if you want to take it even farther, if his name is actually Aegon, if his name is truly Aegon, as revealed in, in Game of Thrones season seven, that's one of the most common names in Westeros. It is a kingly name. It's a royal name. But he would be Aegon the seventh in, in, if, if, it, if that pans out to be the case in the story. Yeah, I think what it feels like to me is the Arthurian legends are backstory for modern fantasy. So in the same way, Arthur Dane is backstory to Jon Snow. Like this is Martin saying, here's what the past is, both of my universe and of fantasy, and here's the step I'm taking beyond it. And in order for that to stick, I think he has to make the Kingsguard in this chapter seem kind of spooky and unreal. Yes. It's partially because this is a dream sequence, and we're going to get into that later. But the way they speak is not only metrically precise, it's like spookily intuitive. They're like intimate romantic partners. They're finishing each other's sentences. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's also kind of like a hive mind. As LML says, the Kingsguard have a lot of imagery in common with the others. Dawn is compared to Milk Glass in this chapter, just like White Walker Bones in A Storm of Swords. And now we have a resurrected corpse wearing a white cloak, uh, Robert Strong. But uh, not, not to say that the Kingsguard are literally others or that there's any actual connection in the story there. But it's that same kind of sense I get from both... The Kingsguard in this chapter and the White Walkers in the prologue is this kind of spooky unreality, being kind of above everything. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just that. Look at even, you know, as Jeff and I were just discussing the other day, the blue eyes, you know, the blue rose yes. petals versus the blue eyes, the eyes of death. But it's it's very interesting, the whole guarding the Savior. It really gives us a lot of insight into what sacrifices really came into guarding the savior to bringing the savior to life. Like John's birth was not just a Liana died in tower birthing him. It was, there was a huge battle. I was like, what happened when you guys were born? Not shit, not shit. Right. Like right. this was the three <laughs> right. greatest warriors of their time died outside of this tower facing some guy who was mediocre at best with his sword. Right. Like he owned a Valyrian steel sword. He couldn't even use in battle because it was too huge. Like, some guy named Howland Reed, like who, <laughs> you know, like it's it, it's this big like David and Goliathy power struggle of like how could these guys who weren't crap and everybody died except these two, like what happened? There's obviously more to find, and we're gonna find it out someday. The it, it's interesting though is that the responses that these Kingsguard give are very indicative of the types of men that they are, as well as also potentially under misunderstanding what their O's actually mean and who they're supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, there was, Ned is basically running down this list of places I expected you to be. Places 
I expected to find you. Parts in the war I expected you to play. I, oh, I thought you might be with uh, Viserys. I thought you might be at Storm's End. You know, I, I thought you might be at the Trident. And their responses are reaffirming their loyalty and devotion. They're just, at every turn, they're saying, no, we didn't belong there. Where we belonged was here. That, you right. know, these, these questions of yours are fundamentally misunderstanding our oaths. We take our oaths seriously and our oaths kind of compel us to be here. They're contrasting themselves along these lines, not only with their enemies. They refer to Jamie as a false brother who deserves hellfire, but also with their allies. They say Willem Derry is a good man and true, but not of the Kingsguard. They're kind of separating themselves, saying we, we are this institution that kind of is above and beyond normal men. And that's kind of how the Kingsguard present themselves. That's how Ned thinks of this particular incarnation of the Kingsguard. When he tells Bran in the Clash of Kings that the Kingsguard used to be the greatest knights in the realm before the fall, again, that fall from grace, he's talking about these three. There's a separate question about whether they really deserve such accolades, but that's not really the main point here because Ned's <laughs> nostalgia is linked to everything he lost during the rebellion. He feels nostalgic for these three because these three were in the Kingsguard before Ned's life went to hell. So Ned's personal fall from grace, the Kingsguard's institutional fall from grace, and fantasies overall metatextual fall from grace, fall from the kind of innocent perspective of someone like Sansa or, or young Lyanna. They're all kind of one big fall in this chapter. Again, it feels like all the threads are really uniting here, and that's a part of what makes it so powerful. It is. And it's also further complicated by things that George has indicated that a character like Sir Arthur Dane, and we can extend that out to Oswald Wendt and Gerald and Gerald Hightower, that their stories are more complex than is presented in this chapter. Someone had asked George in 2012 about Arthur Dane saying, Arthur Dane has been presented as the quintessential chivalrous knight. How could he support the atrocities of Eris that even Jamie was horrified by? And George says, well, keep reading. <laughs> so you do kind of get the sense that there's more to be revealed about the backstory of these characters, about why they were there. And it does bring us to an excellent question from one of our sworn swords, Sir James R.W., who asks, when Sir Gerald says the King's Guard does not flee, isn't this giving it away that the King is there with them? And is there a historical precedent for the King's Guard? So I'll turn that question over to you guys to give your get your perspectives on 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 the King's Guard, the history of the King's Guard, and whether they're protecting the King, namely being John. Yeah, that's kind of the great thing about the structure of this conversation is that Ned is asking without directly asking. Why are you guys here? Right. Here's all these places it would have made sense for you to be, given who you are, given your jobs. Why are you in the middle of Dorne guarding my sister? What brought you here? And by talking about their oaths, no, seriously, they, they take them. Yeah, the Kingsguard are answering that without fully answering that. They are implying that, yes, our job is to guard the king. We take that oath seriously. So here we are, guarding the king. That's kind of what what the structuring absence in that conversation is, is that, as Sir James says, that kind of gives the game away, arguably, that they consider Jon Snow to be the true monarch, and that's why they're there, defending him to the death. It is, and because we're seeing this from Ned's perspective, the important thing to remember is, we see this, but for Ned, this is him asking, why are you here, and him finding out why they are there. This yep. is Ned walking up yep, those yep. stairs to the tower and getting to Lyanna and her shoving this baby in his face as she's gushing blood as she dies. You know, YOLO. And <laughs> as she shoves this baby in his hands and she's all, his name's A. John Harry whatever Targaryen. And uh, please keep him safe because he's kind of the king. And I got secretly married in Dorne or in like this grassy area that doesn't look like Dorne. Whatever. Whatever she says to him. It's really the Isle of Faces. But anyways, whatever Lyanna <laughs> says to Ned Just with so his baby know. in her arms about her wedding in the Isle of Faces to Rhaegar Targaryen 
it, it does give it away, but it's about what he finds. And it says a lot that we have three Kingsguard and there's obviously all this numerology we're going to get into, but there's a ton of three wise men imagery, right? From Christianity <laughs> and the bringing mm-hmm. of gifts to the savior in the tower. We see it in Contra Celsum, gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who is mortal, and incest, fuck, close enough, incest, (laughs) (laughs) and incense as to a god. So gold is a symbol of kingship on earth, frankincense, which is an incense, and as a symbol of deity, and myrrh, an embalming oil, as a symbol of death. All of these things are obviously very associated with this tower and with John, in his life and in his death. Marco Polo even claimed that, uh, so Marco Polo claimed he was shown the three tombs of the Magi, the Meiji, the three wise men at Save south of Tehran in the 1270s. And he has this quote that is from uh, Marco Polo, the Book of the Million, book one. In Persia, it is the city of Saba from which the three Magi set out and in this city they are buried in three very large and beautiful monuments side by side. And above them, there is a square building beautifully kept. The bodies are still entire with hair and beard remaining. I love that because we see that Ned and Howlin in this chapter, we learn they hand bury not only the three kings, but the other men who came to fight against the Kingsguard. And we do see these numbers pop up constantly in the books, right? In the Song of Ice and Fire series, you see seven against three, three, Five against three. They were seven. They were three. Uh, You look at Jamie's battle that we talk about in this chapter from last chapter. They were five against three, to which Cersei says eight men dead. Uh, Minus Ned and Howland, obviously, is the same thing in the Tower of Joy. We similarly get a lot of this three wise men and the adoration of the seeker kind of imagery in Daenerys' plot, right? In Karth, in a comparable desert setting. Yeah, that's a great point. Danny in the Red Waste in the Clash of Kings is a direct parallel to this. She gets the three wise men in her case being uh, the warlock Piet Pri, the merchant Zerozo and Daxos, and the Shadowbinder Quaith. Uh, the desert setting com- comparable to the Red Mountains of Dorne, not only in terms of like uh, Bethlehem and following the star across the desert, but also the idea of Fisher King and Corn King figures like Jesus that where the world is a wasteland and the birth of the kind of messiah figure needs to restore it. So it kind of makes perfect thematic sense to situate those stories in a desert. You've got like a Vias Toloro in Denester's plot, which he thinks about making the dead city bloom. Again, kind of fitting the imagery of flowers and dying flowers that we see here. So yeah, I think that's a great comparison between those two. Obviously, John and Danny are parallels in a ton of ways. As yes. That's just one of many. So do you guys think that Ned knew what was at the Tower of Joy, whether there, John was waiting for him there, whether there was a potential character that maybe Chloe might know a lot more about that might have told Ned where to find Lyanna and whether this character, maybe she's a she, told Ned about the uh, what awaited him when he went down to the Tower of Joy? Well, talk about the Danes. Well, of course, of the big uh, companions at the Tower of Joy and the opposite of the companion group, we have those Kingsguard, those shiny, shiny Kingsguard as individuals. And I think Arthur Dane, who is, of course, the sibling to the very important character, Gianna Reed, I mean, Ashara Dane in the Song of Ice and Fire (laughs) series. Uh, Arthur Dane is huge, right? Like he is the knight, the knight of all knights. Jamie Lannister wanted to bang him. Uh, Every girl wanted to bang him. I mean, it, it, I'm just saying it was a thing. 
But that gives a big thing of Arthur Dane is talked about in the world book, in the world of ice and fire as a huge, like the best friend of Rhaegar, right? Like Arthur Dane is Rhaegar's BFF, best friends forever, wrote in every yearbook, you know, like blah, 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 whatever, like don't ever change. Love you, pal. And the <laughs> Danes had to play a role in the rebellion. Think about Wyla, who was the serving woman for House Dane. They got to be at the tower. Uh, that is when everybody pours over that chapter, Eddard one, and says, well, who else was at the Tower of Joy? Who else? When they found him holding Liana's hand, Wyla is definitely yep. the first name that comes to mind after Howland, right? Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yep. But the biggest question really is, is who told Ned Liana was in the tower and why was it probably a Shardane? I mean, that's that's the question on everyone's mind, right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, yes. I mean, not only does House Dane obviously play this huge role in all of this, Ashara did dance with Ned at his request put forth by Brandon, the wild wolf. And whether or not it came into like a romantic kind of thing, which is wrong, uh, whether or not that did or did not, mostly did not happen. Ned and Ashara <laughs> did dance and they did have some sort of relationship, whether it was just casual, whether it was whatever. It's more than likely Ashara had to have told him what was going on. Who else would have seen him? Who else could have seen him? Uh, it does make me wonder if the fisherman's wife or is a fisherman's sister? I never remember. Uh, the fisherman's daughter. daughter. See, it was one of them. It does make me wonder if the fisherman's daughter could have been Ashara meeting with Ned or something. But you look at Edric Dane is called Ned after Ned Stark, right? That is. <laughs> yeah, that's a big clue. So <laughs> after you kill the the eldest or the second eldest of the family, who's the Lord, who's the Kingsguard, like the A plus model Kingsguard student. You slash him up, you murder him. They just say, "All right, well, that's cool. You brought our sword back. We're gonna name this kid after you. That's that's normal." Yeah, there's definitely got to be an emotional, actual emotional connection there, and you see that persistent connection between Ned and House Dane. Not only in him getting angry when Ashara's name is brought up, but as I've said a couple of times. That uh, great little moment that Bran recalls between his father uh, and himself uh, regarding Arthur Dane, kind of his legend. Absolutely. That moment when Bran asks him uh, if the Kingsguard were truly the finest knights in the Seven Kingdoms, and Ned says, no longer. But once they were a marvel, a shining lesson to the world. And Bran asks, was there one who was best of all? The finest knight I ever saw was Sir Arthur Dane, who fought with a blade called Dawn. Forged from the heart of a fallen star. They called him the sword of the morning, and he would have killed me but for Howland Reed. Hmm. Father had gotten sad then, and he would say no more. Bran wished he had asked him what he meant. Which, like, same. All of us wish <laughs> yeah, that. Right? Like, all of us are like, yeah, Bran, I kind of wish you had shut your mouth. Go on, and then go maybe on. Only said, yeah, like, get it together, Bran. It also is a huge, I love the nod that, Arthur Dane dying at the Tower of Joy is really putting that whole prophecy in place of, you know, born under a bleeding star. Sure is. I mean, that's a little on the nose, but, you know, amidst salt and smoke, which, of course, sand and salt and smoke, maybe the rubble of the towers. I mean, there's a lot to go off of there. Lots to think about. Yep. And you get that same sense of, again, that 
this is the moment where kind of the songs became false for Ned when he talks about the Kingsguard once being a marvel, a shining lesson to the world. Of course, he's he's got to know better than that at some level. That's a very, you know, kind of a naive statement, but he wants that to be true. He wants to be able to tell that narrative to Bran because that's the only way he can make sense of what happened to him is that things used to be beautiful and then they kind of collapsed. That's, it's a harsh narrative. It's not necessarily a realistic one, but it's the one that makes the most emotional sense to Ned given what happened. Great. It says a lot about Catelyn too because think about... Brandon versus Baelish, right, in their battle for her affections. And then think about the other battle that we hear her really talk about from her youth was Arthur Dane slain in single combat by her now husband. I mean, that's a feat. You don't just kill the, like, hardest dude on the Kingsguard besides Barrison. You don't just go killing them. That's not a thing that normally happens. And Ned, plain-faced, sweet Ned, quiet Ned, the quiet wolf, is the one that did it. That should be a glamorous war story and Ned feels shame and trauma and just awful about it. So that's that right there is a huge telling. That's a great point for sure. Again, it's the the sad, tragic, romantic backstory didn't empower you. It's not like even a story you want to tell your kids. It's yes. something kind of horrible and dispiriting and something that kind of ruins your present. True that. And then you when we talk about Ned's companions, though, I mean, you get that same sort of tragic sense about these guys that they're built up to be these amazing dudes that all died well before their time. Yeah, and there's tons of names that we actually know from our modern Song of Ice and Fire. There's so many. There's Jory Castle, right? We all know Jory Rip. We should take hmm. a moment of silence for him because last chapter for Ned was awful. It hurts. Jory is Martin Cassell's only surviving son. So Sir Roderick that we see in the story is Jory's brother. There's such weird loyalty from families that lost people that were with Ned. So it really kind of pulls back that idea of, you know, Ned was the people's man, right? You know, he was he was that guy that you just sit at dinner with him. He rotated all of his smaller servants or his people that served him through. He wasn't like every other lord. We get Theo Wool, who was with him, which presumably is related in some way to Hugo, as we know as Big Bucket Wool, since Theo oh, yeah. was also named Buckets. So just a little connection there, right? Buckets, Big Bucket, Big big Booty Wool. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Big Bucket's doing the same thing. He's marching to free the innocent Stark girl from uh, the clutches of her husband, obviously. Oh, yeah. He's not as... Ramsey is no Rhaegar, obviously, but it's the same kind of thing where uh, you, ha- you see these Northmen uh, marching off to their fate, knowing they might die to to save the Ned's girl, whether it's his, his sister at the Tower of Joy or his daughter at Winterfell. I mean, it was Valiant Rickard's precious little girl this time. You know, Valiant Rickard exactly. who rode to King's Land against Aerys's reign, you know, uh, went in there and he was killed wrongfully. It's the same thing as we look at the Red Wedding. We look at the Sept of Baylor. The Starks have just been getting shit on for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Willem Dustin and Mark Riswell were also present, which is a huge Barbary connection, right? Right there. Uh, Barbary Dustin. So Willem Dustin, which she never forgives, as we know, that his bones never came back, that Ned buried him in a cairn out at the Tower of Joy. We don't really know the relation with Mark Riswell. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit. Well, no, I, I think it's interesting that... When we look at Ned's companions, we see a broad cross-section of the North in terms of its people. We've got a lord. We've got a knight. We've got 
people from different noble houses. You've got the Dustins, the Riswells, you've got Jory, you've got Martin Cassell, who's kind of, I mean, I, I, I like to picture the Cassell, House Cassell is kind of a more middle class, kind of Novu Rish type class that has kind of sure. risen up and is, you know, they have a last name, but they don't, you don't hear about House Cassell's keep anywhere in the north because they're, they're sworn to the Starks. They live at Winterfell. So, and then you have Theo Wool, who is a clansman there. So you have a broad cross section of the North that is alongside of Ned for the final act of Robert's Rebellion. And I think that's really fascinating. I think, again, we're, we're talking about Ned a little bit here. And I think it's fascinating when we get to see that Ned is not bringing maybe necessarily, I mean, these guys are all pretty good soldiers, you, you have to imagine. And, and then you've, fuck, I forgot about Helen Reed. How can I forget about Helen Reed? And and then of course you have Helen Reed too. So you have again a really broad cross section of Northmen from noble, knightly, middle class folks, and you know you've got squires and you've got all sorts of interesting folks that are down with Ned. And I I think again when we talk about Ned, we have to speak about him in terms of the guy who brings people to his table, um, the, the the people who bre- who breed his horses, who make his meals, who make his armor. And I think here Ned's bringing. The people from different statuses in terms of their socioeconomic background to the Tower of Joy. I think that's that's a testament to Ned and to his style of leadership. Yeah. And when you push it to the other side and you look at who is with Rhaegar Targaryen, you get the two most fiercely, you know, fiercely magical and shiny Kingsguard members. But versus the depth of what Ned brought with him, that tells a real story. Absolutely. I mean, you get into this when we see Ned's memories kind of alternately fading and staying strong when he describes these men. He can't recall the faces of his own companions. He says in the dream there were only shadows, gray wraiths on horses made of mist. But he can recall those of the Kingsguard saying, and these were no shadows, their faces burned clear even now. And this gets at the double-edged sword of legacy, which of course is a frequent topic in A Song of Ice and Fire. As with Sir Hugh of the Vale at the Hand's Tourney, no songs will be sung of Ned's companions. Time has ruined his memories of them, despite pledging to never forget them. He, he can't get them back. Try as he has to kind of honor his relationship to them and the sacrifice they made, their faces are gone. But songs are sung of Arthur Dane, and as such, no one forgets his face. His sad smile lingers in Ned's memory. Uh, they are no ordinary three, but as Jeff said, Ned's, Ned's six kind of are ordinary, at least in comparison to these three. So they've faded. But on the other hand... I mean, the Kingsguard do end up in graves alongside most of Ned's companions and not any fancier or more special graves. So, you know, no difference between the two when the stranger shows up, ultimately. But no, it's cool about the memories and how they they fade and how different things kind of like stay in your consciousness and some things get filtered out and some things get rebuilt into something that's entirely new. But... You know, the thing is, is that it's all a wheel, as George will later say in The Feast for Crows in the form of Roderick, uh, Roderick Carlyle. For time is time is a wheel for perforce chance things that have happened one time before will happen yet again. Yeah, I think the core of this scene is really Arthur Dane's declaration. And now it begins. And then Ned's response. No, now it ends. Hmm. Because they're both right. This is both the beginning and an ending in many ways. This is the end of the bloodshed of Robert's Rebellion. But it's also the beginning of the aftershocks that will continue throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. This is the end of Ned Stark's innocent youth, but it's also the beginning of his world-weary adulthood. 
Um, you know, it's it's the end of the Tolkien-esque fantasy, and it's the beginning of its deconstruction. As I said about Blood and Roses, they're both present in this scene. And of course, this is the end of Lyanna's life and the beginning of John's. So while this scene functions as a ravishing origin story of the prince that was promised, I think these lines acknowledge that neither life nor good stories actually function in terms of such rigid delineations. Nothing ends, Adrian. Nothing ever ends, to borrow hmm. again from Watchmen. It's an Ouroboros. It's a dragon eating his own tail, as Ariane will point out to Eris Okart in A Feast for Crows. So you have new life that contains death within it, and you have classic fantasy images that give way to the harsh, messy realities of which the songs do not speak. And, you know, the sense that that none of none of the none of the people involved in this can do, really do anything about the river of time that Bloodraven describes to Bran. They're all just kind of stuck on their own little portion of it, and they do what they can. But it, it says something that we're, we're focusing on not not John, not Lyanna in this scene, but of Ned, who has had to kind of bear the burden through time. That for him, this is this is just again the end and beginning of so many things. It's not just a simple cut and dried origin story. Yeah, you know, it's the final awakening of Ned. It's this final passage between youth and his adulthood. You know, Ned witnessed the horrors of war, the sack of King's Landing, Tywin Lannister laying the bodies of not Ray, of Rhaenys and Aegon in front of Robert and Robert's I only see dragon spawn and then finally hear him losing his sister after losing his father and his brother before. Like Ned has to feel extraordinarily alone and extraordinarily sad. And you do kind of wonder whether that's kind of George's point, and that is kind of the passage, the honed, time-tested, true passage from youth into adulthood is losing people and having to just go on and keep on pushing towards something new, flowing down that river, as like you said, that Ben Bloodraven talked about, that you do have to like keep dealing with things, and that's sad. It's it's really. As awesome as this chapter is, as awesome as the imagery is, as chivalric and romantic as it is, ultimately it's completely, it's a complete fucking downer of of a uh, of of things. If I look back, I'm oh lost. yeah, it's it's really sad because it's like every character in this book is spending their time fixing things, and they're fixing the things that they think are wrong. It all kind of pulls into that sins of our father mm-hmm. idea, right? And you have the adults that are the sinners. And being the fathers and the mothers of these kids that are making their own sins while they try to struggle through this world that they've been built and given. And when Robert says that he will hear no more of this Targaryen girl, all Ned can think of is, of course, hearkening right back to Eddard too. What of the Targaryen boy? Right. It's Robert roaring in his ear. Unspeakable? What Ares did to your brother Brandon was unspeakable. The way your lord father died, that was unspeakable. And Rhaegar, how many times do you think he raped your sister? How many hundreds of times? And it's Robert just (laughs) angrily saying, I'll kill every Targaryen I can get my hands on until they're as dead as their dragons, and then I will piss on their graves. But there's that moment that Ned thinks... Ned knew better than to defy him when the wrath was on him. If the years had not quenched Robert's thirst for revenge, no words of his would help. You can't get your hands on this one, can you? He said quietly. That's so chilling because you know Ned isn't just thinking about Daenerys. Robert could get his hands on Daenerys if he tried hard enough. You can feel Ned's quiet. The calm of the quiet wolf here. When you read this passage, you can feel that flicker of the corner of his mouth as he says it. 
You can't get your hands on this one, can you? And he can't get his hands on John either. And you definitely see that come up when Ned snaps back to reality. Oop, there goes gravity. And the transition there is really so crucial. That transition moment when he's just whispering, I promise. Leah, I promise. That's the heart of Ned's characterization right there. It comes in a whisper, in a feverish delusion, in between sleeping and waking. It almost gives away his secret. I mean, as I said, the structuring absence in this chapter is, of course, John. That's what the Kingsguard and Ned are kind of dancing around in their conversation. That's what the dream cuts away from before you get to see who's up there in the tower with Liana. And this is what Ned took away from his tragic romantic backstory, a child and a promise to protect it. That's what he's gotten. It's ironic that the the honorable Ned Stark's most noble act is one that no one knows about, one that does not pay yeah. his reputation at all. In fact, he has sullied his reputation to cover it up. As Jamie says to Catelyn, I find it passing odd that I am hated by so many for my finest act and loved by one for something I never did. But it only makes it all the more heroic that Ned has kept the secret and doesn't use it to burnish his reputation at all. And then, of course, you get that, that grief that links the past and the present. Once Ned wakes up, he thinks of the dream just one more time in this chapter when... He's thinking about how uh, Jory has to rest beside his grandfather because his father was left behind in Dorne. So everywhere Ned goes, he just kind of leaves these dead people behind him. It, and as Tyrion says, it all keeps going back like that. Puppets on strings. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, de- so deal with that, folks. Mortality. Yeah. Everybody everybody dies. Yeah. We have to, we have to deal with it at yeah, some point. That's the question. Do you have to? I will literally never die. Ever. <laughs> Well, that's the question. You have to wake up. I mean, if this dream sequence was the origin story of an arguable heir to the Iron Throne, done up with this kind of lush, fantastic imagery and these larger-than-life personalities, the scene with Robert and Cersei is what you're left with in the morning. Like, this is what royalty actually looks like. Once you remove the kind of glorious romance of the origin myths, you just have this drunk man and this angry woman just going around and around, hurting each other endlessly. I mean, you you do have to... It really reinforces the sadness of it. You know, you're absolutely oh, yeah. correct that Ned's heroic moment is him saving Jon Snow's life and claiming him as his bastard son for 15 years now and, and beyond. And that's that's great and all. But again, all of that was maybe not. It wasn't ultimately in service of Robert and his reign. But Ned's actions in fighting on behalf of the rebellion was to prop oh, up. Sure his friend and prop up his friend who has turned out not to be a great dude. I mean, this, this chapter reinforces why Robert is a terrible fucking human being and why he's a terrible, not, he's not as terrible as a King, but he's a really bad King all the same. Like he, he completely drops all of his responsibilities at the time when Westeros is like gearing up for war. He's like, ah, fuck that. I'm off to hunt, man. Like you take care of this shit for me. I'm not going to talk about this stuff anymore. I'm going to go hunt for a little while. Clear my head. Well, the entire realm is falling into war all around him. I mean, that's, it's not, again, it's not ultimately what Ned fought for at the Tower of Joy, but it was ultimately what Ned fought for in Robert's Rebellion. Yeah. Robert is just drunk and wants this over and done with same as in Derry and Eddard III. Cersei just snaps at him relentlessly and then he hits her. And after she leaves, he describes it to Ned with this very pointed turn of phrase. I should not have hit her. That was not, that was not kingly. Like, that's such a telling choice of words on Martin's part right after this kind of birth of a king imagery sequence in the Tower of Joy. I mean, what is, what is kingly, really? Especially in the context of the fall from grace Robert describes where he's looking at his hands, you know, classic like Macbeth slash Stannis after Renly dies, blood on the hands kind of imagery. I was always strong. No one could stand before me. No one, like that line Chloe was talking about, no one can withstand yep. me. 
How and this is just heartrending. How do you fight someone if you can't hit them? That's just that's where Robert's head is at. He's just so confused by how you be a hero, how you be a king. What does this mean after you can't just punch someone? Mm. What is life after the songs, after you grow up, when merely riding at the head of fancy banners isn't enough? What does it mean to be a king at that point? Robert is not prepared to answer that question, but maybe John will be. We can hope. We can hope. Absolutely. I think even more poignant and pointed is when Robert talks about how Rhaegar won, that he feels at some level that not only was he didn't not only did he not get what he wanted out of the war, but at some level he lost the war. Yeah. I killed him. I drove the spike right through that black armor into his black heart. They made up songs about it. That's like, that's such a, another crucial line. They made up songs. That's where Robert's living. But those songs don't help Robert make it through the day. They don't prevent him from beating his wife. So then he's kind of asking himself, what does it mean that I won? What is, what did, what did that produce? What did that get me? If, if I, he got an empty, broken crown, right? An empty throne. A broken crown. It meant nothing. Everything he thought and felt for Liana, it turns out it was kind of just fake in the end, right? Mm -hmm. Just like the songs, just like the kingship. He's no true king. And Ned suddenly starts to wake up, as most characters do in this story, too little, too late, and thinks, is this what would have happened to Liana if she lived and they had wed? Just like we hear in the last chapter with Liana's line, love is sweet. Dearest Ned, but it cannot change a man's hmm. nature. Yeah. You, you know, I, I found it so odd in this chapter on reread how Ned doesn't make an emotional reaction to Robert striking Cersei. And I think you guys have kind of clued me in as to why that's the case. You do kind of wonder whether Ned is non-reacting because he realizes or, or that he, he's non-reacting because he is suppressing those feelings about Lyanna and about Jon Snow here, much as he's done throughout his entire life in order to ensure Jon's survival and his ability to live a long and full life all the way to the age of 17 before he stabbed, of course. But then, you know, of course, but rip, rip for the moment, for a few, for like a week or so. No, forever. He's dead. Right? Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it makes sense why Ned's just non-reacting here, because that is a brutal moment in the story, which showcases Robert as this bad dude. Ned's not reacting. Why is he not reacting? He's not reacting because, as with all things related to Lyanna, he's imagining Lyanna in the situation. He's suppressing that. That feels like a very Ned reaction to what he's witnessing in his sickbed. He's passed that on to all of his kids, as we read with Sansa and Arya and even Bran in a bit, right? And it, it's sad because it led to him spending these years ignoring the world so he didn't have to deal with this harsh reality that the king that he put on the throne led to brutal deaths and loss, death of children, right? All these secrets and yep. all for nothing because Robert has become what? A drunk, fat, abusive sot, right? Like spending your years doing all that and realizing that you would seat your sister with him and thinking, wow, he would kill my nephew. Like, Ned needs a couple Xanax, is what I'm trying to say. He's, <laughs> and he's not... Don't we all? Yeah, right? He's not better than the Kingsguard in this, right? Like, he's standing there, and you see him in... It really comes to play in that Godswood chapter where he says to Cersei, you know, does he do this often? Like, Ned, open your eyes. It's always been this way. Yeah, and again, it's that yeah, the scales falling from your eyes. You said it perfectly. And that's something that Robert is unable to do. He's unable to kind of remove that filter because while he understands that he didn't get what he wanted, 
this hasn't led to a change of values. This hasn't led him to reevaluate the world and how he can better bring those values apart. He's just kind of stuck. And part of the problem is that he's stuck in that superficial mindset where because Rhaegar had, quote, black armor, that means he had a, quote, black heart. Hmm. Like, that's that's Robert being the naive fantasy reader there, right? Just assuming, taking surfaces uh, for granted and assuming they speak accurately to the true depth of the character within. I mean, he did the same thing with Lyanna, right? As Ned says, you never saw what was underneath. You just saw the beauty. It was just skin deep for you. This is what always happens with Robert. And once again, I think we're supposed to hope for better with John. He's got a black cloak, but we know he has a good heart like Ned's. He, he tends to see past the appearances, whether you're talking Sam Tarly in the first book or Satin in the most recent book. I mean, you can see that there's something good in Robert remaining with his relationship with and love for Ned Stark. When he says, like it or not, you are my hand, damn you, I forbid you to leave. That's real sweet. That's real vulnerable. He's saying, I can't, I can't do this without you. I need you here. And that's, that, that is very moving. But he hasn't changed his mind on what they were fighting about. Daenerys' fate. When Ned brings up the Targaryen girl, the reason Ned gave up his handship in the first place, as, as both of you have said, Robert just cuts him off. Doesn't want to talk about it anymore. And then, of course, he drops, he drops the mother of all ironic, we'll talk about it later lines. <laughs> when Ned says that we must talk, and Robert says, I'm going to the Kingswood to hunt. Whatever you have to say can wait until I return. Of course. Oh, no. Never mm-hmm. say that. Never say that to a person. I mean, what can you say about those two scenes taken together? The Tower of Joy scene plus what's happened to Robert. Except that, as Robert says, the gods are seldom good. The dream is dead, and it can live again in the next generation. It can live in John and everything, else, everyone else of his age. But all that this generation is left with are ghosts. And as Chloe says, we're going to get into that in the Godswood chapter again, when Cersei brings up Robert whispering Lyanna, and Ned thinks of those pale blue roses and wants to weep and says, I don't know which of you I feel more sorry for. Mm. It's really yeah. sad, too, because something that we kind of glaze over from the last chapter, of course, is Bera, uh, Robert's daughter, bastard daughter with a uh, a sex worker her death indirectly in this scene is caused right because ned brings up bara as he's arguing with robert and he brings up bara and her mother in front of cersei which indirectly oh leads to cersei killing off all of robert's bastards in king's landing that she can find so much like we see ned end up directly reveal his plan to bring just ruling to the kingdom to cersei by enslaving <laughs> stannis and of course, Hell thank you, yeah. as we see Sansa indirectly revealing Ned's plan to spirit them away, it kind of shows Ned shooting himself in the foot here, not realizing what exactly he's saying and just trying to do good. The man that, of course, does nothing but fight for the children has accidentally condemned the children. It wasn't the wine that killed the king. It was your mercy. Damn. Absolutely. Yeah, And that pretty much wraps up A Game of Thrones Edward 10. Uh, <laughs> and speaking of the ending of A Game of Thrones Edward 10, that is actually my dislike for this chapter, to shift into that section. For me, I'll pin the damn thing on Jamie Lannister. It's just a cheap-ass punchline on which to end this chapter of all chapters. Like, you end the Red Wedding with Catelyn screaming to herself that Ned loves my hair, and then the cold bite of the knife on her throat. Like, that's that's the horrifying way you end that chapter. For me, this would be like if... Instead, the end of the Red Wedding was Walder Frey saying to his heir, Ryman, now don't you screw this up or I'll give the damn twins over to your son, Edwin. (laughs) Like, for me, it just feels tonally off, like ending a symphony with a fart. Like, that's what this is. But I take it it from Jeff's facial expression that he disagrees. Well, it's... 
I, I hate ah, I hate disagree ah, with you because I mean, like you say things so nice. I know I'm right all the time. You just got the best words and the but the wrong opinion on this one. <laughs> Nicely put, sir. Bring no, it on, bring it on. I think, like, your point about the Red Wedding is, is well taken, that it wouldn't have packed any narrative punch at all to have Walter Frey snarking about his sons and grandsons. We'll fuck it all up. But we still have five Ned chapters to get through here. Like, Catelyn Stark's True. story is over and at the end of the Red Wedding. That is, well, not, well, with Lady Stoneheart, it's not actually technically <laughs> over. But it's still, it's I know what you mean, though, books? yeah. I mean, that's a f- I don't has read. He? Has he, though? I, I don't read. He's a- from- He's a good American, Chloe. He does not read. Absolutely. He, mere, he merely acts and salutes his flag. God he just bless America. freedom. <laughs> exactly. No, that's a fair point. It's not. It's not happening at the same moment in their storylines. That's a. That's a fair distinction to make. But but the thing is 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 that I think that George probably and George, if you want to write us, let us know. But if, <laughs> speaking for George, I think he wanted to add another layer of Ned. You have to stay in King's Land. You can't run to Winterfell, or else Jamie Lannister becomes the hand, and this whole thing is fucking over. And Robert's going to die, and Westeros is going to be united behind the Lannisters here. Like I, I think that was George's primary motive, primary motivation in having I'll pen the damn thing on Jamie Lannister because then it, it keeps Ned Stark in King's Landing for another few chapters until he, of course, ends. His life and on on, ba- on the uh, the steps of <laughs> on the steps of the sept of the great sept of Baylor. Nicely him. said, yeah, especially at the him. end there. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like it's not that I don't want it in the chapter. I just wish like there had been another paragraph where like Ned settles back into bed and dreams once more the dreams of yours, like, like something just tonally that feels like the beginning of the chapter for me. Yeah, because otherwise this feels kind of just like an abrupt ending for this particular chapter. But that's a very good point. We do need it emphasized. That Ned cannot leave like he was planning to, and that Ned's not going to leave like he was planning to. Chloe is also making a face that I want to react to now. <laughs> it's just this, this 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 multifaceted portrait of like being very fond of us and also not being able to stand us. Which is it, Chloe? Is it both? Yes, it's both. My answer is yes. Um, look, I'm sorry this chapter didn't tuck you into bed at night, Emmett, and kiss you on the forehead, okay? Wow, like... Damn! I didn't know that's where we were in the 10th out of 15 Eddard chapters, okay? This is the mid-end of the book. It's not bedtime or playtime anymore, okay? And Robert straight up just said, hey, remember how I just fought with my wife in front of you about her brother, who, by the way, she's fucking... Uh, I don't know that-ish. <laughs> I'm kind of closing my eyes to it, said Robert, but... Uh, this is a hell of a speech Robert's going on <laughs> I know. here. I wish this dialogue had been included in the final draft. Okay. He's an enigma wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in a sausage what roll. What I'm saying is Carathian. the last chapter, and, and I mean the whole entire, like the first, the whole thing of, the, the, the thing, the book we're reading. The book. You guys read this book? Hey, a Game of Thrones by George R. Are you guys into this book? So this whole book, Jamie has served as this kind of, you know, antagonist to Ned in King's Landing, although Ned doesn't realize until the worst moment that Littlefinger is his true antagonist in King's Landing, right? His Skahaz mm. Mokondak, mm-hmm. his, yes. uh, you know, his last second worries. Yep. But, and Jamie, as we get to see, he's been wrongly accused. We get to unpack that as we get into him in Hall and with Brienne. But Ned doesn't understand that Jamie really isn't his enemy, except for that, like, scene where Jamie was all, you know, last chapter, oh, I'm going to kill all your men and break your leg. That was kind of, kind of villainy. But, I don't know. I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that deep. Emmett is what I'm saying. I think it's just Robert, and the only way he can relate to people or humans without being completely shit faced 
and without making out with them, Robert's just like, if you leave me, I'm going to make Jamie Lannister. And we both know he sucks because you were there last chapter, Ned, and that sucked for you. And your life sucks right exactly. now. Exactly. So I think that's all it oh, was. I, I get it, though, because... I think that's perfectly fine. Yeah. It's such a good chapter. That's your worst, like, part of it? Good. Good. <laughs> Very true. No, I think it's perfectly fine in isolation. I just think it's weird to have a chapter start with, he dreamed the uh, that old dream again and end with, I'll pin the damn thing on Jamie Lannister. Those don't feel like two parts of the same chapter. Okay. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Something something I like about the chapter, though, is just Arthur Dane's sad smile. That's just such a wonderful little touch of a mm-hmm. detail. Because I'm not, I don't usually care for Arthur Dane much. I gotta say, like he just seems kind of like, you know, oh, he's a nice guy who did nice things forever, and he's named Arthur, and he has a pretty sort. Like again, he's the image of fantasy Martin is kind of pulling away from. So I feel like he's just kind of put up on a shelf. And isn't really much fleshed out as a character. This is one little moment I do feel connected to him. Like that sad smile, that bittersweet ending. He knows what's coming, all of it. He, he, he knows, he's already figured out, I'm sure, that Rhaegar is dead. But he knows new life is coming forth from Lyanna up there. I feel like that really captures the, the, the tone of this scene. That this scene is both like the ultimate ravishing high fantasy scene. Yet it's also kind of taking those tropes apart. And I, I love that little moment when Ned describes Arthur Dane his sad smile. Yeah. So... Chloe, as our guest. You <laughs> yes, absolutely. What, what, what do you like and dislike about Eddard Tent in oh Game of Thrones? Gosh, I like all of it. I don't... Sure. How could you bring me on for this episode and expect <laughs> me not to like all of it? It's so hard. The language. The language is just mm. so beautifully written. Yep, yep. Uh, in several ways. Of course, there's that line with, you know, the king swirled the wine in his cup, brooding. He took a swallow. No, he said. I want no more of this. Jamie slew three of your men and you five of his. Now it ends. Versus, of course, they were seven against three that we read in the same chapter. And of course, how could you not like that lyric, that so metal lyric of the Song of Ice and Fire, where mm. it just says, as they came together in a rush of steel and shadow, he could hear Liana screaming, Eddard, she called. A storm of rose petals blew across a blood-streaked sky, as blue as the eyes of death. This is literally so metal. Like, I don't... It's the most yeah. metal line. It is metal. Like, guitar screeches. Like, it's metal. Yeah, it's the best of all imagery in the history of the Earth, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, really, just like, I can't, I can't overstate how much I love this little sentence here. Uh, again, it's not actually representative. Like, gritty, realistic George R. R. Martin does not usually plunge headfirst into such abstract imagery that is so unconnected from anything literally happening in the scene. Yeah. And he wants you to notice it when he does do that. From here to the House of the Undying to Brandon Bloodraven, the Forsaken, it's symbolically significant. And yeah, the just the sheer amount of things this reminds me of. It's very metal, as Chloe said. You can just imagine an album cover looking like this. It's also very kind of anime-ish, like the the swarm of rose petals and the kind of intense, oversaturated colors just put me in mind of a lot of anime. It reminds me of DC Comics, whenever there's kind of multiverse problems in the DC universe, whenever, like, you know, worlds are colliding, dimensions are shifting, the sky tends to turn red. So it might be a nod to that as kind of this is Martin's version of that apocalyptic happening. It kind of reminds me of romance novels in a way, like the the flower petals and the red, like it feels like a cover of a romance novel, like where the petals like frame the action and the sky is red. But instead of like a man and a woman clutching each other romantically in the center of the cover, the center of the cover is a woman dying. Again, it's that kind of undercutting of the romantic image. And it's, as Chloe said, it's a vision of the others and of the end of the world and the winds of winter, that everything turns red 
uh, for the kind of the sea of blood, the black and bloody tide associated with Euron and the apocalypse that we've seen in recent books. And the blue eyes of death are, of course, the others because they have those those bright, shining blue star eyes that are described over and over again in the series. So, yeah, and just we, we could do an episode just on this one line because it's so dense and stands out so much from everything else in the series. I really love it. Again, George is fantastic when it comes to doing his colors. And I mean, his, his utilization of colors here, blue rose petals blowing across a blood streaked sky. Mm-hmm. That's just uh, gorgeous. It's, it's gorgeous imagery. It's gorgeous writing. And I, I mean, you guys have pretty much said everything that, that needs to be said about it, but it's, it's fantastic. And I, I love it. It makes me, again, it's, it makes the hair on my, my arm just stand up. You can't see it on my on the video, but but it it's just it's fantastic. Yeah, the splash of color in Ned's noir investigative art, right? This is right. That That's blue. a great it's point. It's a flash yeah. of color across what's otherwise so black and white. This chapter is telling so many stories at once, right? It's the definitive of who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And here's Ned telling the stories to us of all these men that died at the Tower of Joy. His arc revolves really heavily around Liana and the trauma of the tower and his promise to her, what it took to keep and fulfill that promise, and we get it from his very first pages until the very end. Honorable Eddard Stark protecting the children, lying for the children. Promise me, she cried. I think the only dislike I really would have on this chapter is this took me so long to come up with, so at first I would just like a drum roll, I guess. Uh, We don't know mark riswell's relation to barbary hmm. riswell slash nay dustin but barbary doesn't even bring him up in her griefs in a dance with dragons with lord eddard and i find that surprising i think that's my dislike that is he a distant cousin we don't even get a mention right he's just a knight of house riswell i i chalk it up to early gardening from george before he knew yeah. of course yep. that barbary was going to be a bigger character in his dance arcs but it's still a little lackluster for me. I would say that's my biggest dislike. Yeah, that's a great point. I think you're right about it being an artifact of the gardening that Martin probably hadn't come up with Barbary at all at this point, let alone that she was going to have a, a beef with Ned about her uh, relationship to her family. But it does seem like he could have thrown a line there in A Dance with Dragons uh, regarding Mark. So, <laughs> Yeah, you do kind of wonder whether it's an oversight on George's part, really. I mean, when we get into the Theon chapters from Dance and... Barbara is talking to him about how Ned took her husband from him and took Brandon from him and these different things, which are are really great emotional pieces, which do help to set up Barbara Dustin as a character and help us kind of contour the North to be a much more complex political animal than we initially suspected of everyone's all pro Stark, except for the Boltons. But then you're like, well, yeah, everyone's kind of kind of likes the the Starks, but then you have the Boltons who actively hate them. You also have Barbary Dustin, who has a compelling reason not to like Ned Stark. Say say Mark Riswell was her brother or her cousin or someone that she was fond of. You know, this would be a way to kind of help to under kind of set a further foundation for Barbary's uh, hostility towards Ned Stark and her her desire to have Ned Stark's bones by by the end of whenever they cross the neck on into the north. Yes, indeed. And I just want to say uh, one more time, Chloe, I love that idea of the splash of color in the noir world for Ned. That's really perfect because it's, as I'll say in his next chapter, it's his investigation is all about black and white and gray, all yes. the colors of truth. Oh, yeah. Uh, so to have to have this color show up in his dream and his backstory again emphasizes that 
that's where the color lives in the dream, in the past, in the fantasy. All the like the great vivid shades and lush imagery that Martin has said is what he loves about fantasy. That's there, but it's not in the present day story. Like it's it's a it's a dream that you have fallen from, and the quote unquote real world you have to live in doesn't work like that. So that's that's a wonderful point. Jufflesworth, sir, <laughs> what do you like dislike about a Game of Thrones at her ten? So it's it's more of a minor like because I mean I I love this entire chapter much like but the both of you. So like we said last week, and Tyrion in his, in his prior chapter, Cersei has a low cunning, and we kind of see this in Spades here. Her constant provocations of Robert show the amount of manipulation she's willing to utilize to steer Robert away from Ned's accusations against Jamie. But I do think it's really interesting in that that low cunning kind of falls to the wayside. And I think it does so when Ned brings up Barra and Maya Stone, because these are really active mm-hmm. wounds for Cersei, right? She's angry that her husband is cheating on her and is fathering bastards across the Seven Kingdoms. And I really think that's why we get that I should be in male and you should be in skirts line. That line doesn't read like manipulation to me. It reads like anger. And I like that the arch conspirator, so far as the re- first time reader knows in reading a Game of Thrones, is is not so arch. So it's good that we have some chinks in Cersei's armor and we get kind of a, a more rounded character of Cersei before we introduce her as a point of view character in Feast for Crows. Yeah, I think that's a terrific point. Um, it's kind of hard to get a read on Cersei a lot of times in these early books because so much of her thought process is necessarily being kept from us. But I do think if you kind of focus in on her lines and where she kind of falls apart in this scene, I agree that the breaking point is when Ned brings up Robert's infidelities for sure. Absolutely. And I, I guess I have to have a dislike too, right? About this chapter? Sure do. Something, Those are the rules. All I've right, had to fine. do it, so you have to do it. Fine. There's not enough Stannis in this chapter. Oh my God. That's not storms. The storms end siege is mentioned, my friend. Cool your jets on behalf of our king. I, look, I said not enough, Stannis. I choose oh. my words. I choose my words. Mm. <laughs> is there ever I, enough Stannis for you? No. Like, imagine like we're gonna cut to Ned in the middle of the Tower of Joy sequence, and he stops and thinks, "I wonder what Stannis Baratheon, Robert's younger brother, would make of all this." <laughs> anyway, anywho, back to the fight, lads. I mean, it was seven against three. Yeah. <laughs> I even I personally even came up first with a Stannis line earlier, so I don't. What have you guys been doing this know. whole episode? What I came, I came up, I came up, I came up with an actual dislike, and you two called me stupid and ugly for it. So That's I understand. I just no, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. No, but but I mean, I really don't have a dislike for this chapter. I think that you both brought up good dislikes, a lot of good discussion about Emma's dislike. And of course, Chloe's brought up something that I'd never really considered about the Riswells. And I think that's fascinating. So I really don't have a dislike for this chapter. I mean, I read it like about seven times before we started recording. It's just wonderful, man. I I, I wish that there was something I could like be like, oh, George, you did this wrong, but I, I can't find anything in my heart of hearts. I can't find anything to dislike. Well, I'm going to punish you by forcing you to talk about Ethan Glover. Oh, what a a punishment. So think about Ethan Glover and the discussion we're about to have as the appetizer to the main event of our theory discussion. So a few years ago, back in 2016, a great Redditor by the name, goes by the username of King Littlefinger, had a great theory, set of theories revolving around what he termed, what he termed the Hall conspiracy. And Little disclaimer up front, we were talking about this in pre-production, but I don't agree with all of the conclusions that he makes in the three-part series that he writes. I think it's a fantastic, wonderful, awesome series, 
but not all of the conclusions are ones that I would necessarily hold. But there is one part of it that I think is fantastic and is a really, I, I think it's true and something that kind of opened my eyes to, to stuff that's going on about the Tower of Joy. So one of the more intriguing recent theories put forward is one that involves a character that receives two, literally two name drops in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, one of them in this chapter, Ethan Glover. So who is Ethan? He's Brandon Squire. That is Brandon. That is Ned Stark's brother, his squire, and the only survivor when Brandon came to King's Landing. And here's the quote from Clash. Ethan Glover was Brandon Squire, Catelyn said. He was the only one to survive. The others were a bunch of other folks. It's, it was queer how she still remembered their names after so many years. Ares accused them of treason and summoned their fathers to court to answer the charge with their sons as hostages. When they came, he had them murdered without trial. Fathers and sons both. In the World of Ice and Fire, it's indicated that it was about 200 people that came to King's Landing and Eris killed every single one of them, except Ethan Glover. Why? Why was Ethan Glover spared? Well, the theory that King Littlefinger puts forward in part two, I think, of a series called the Rat, A Rat in the Dungeon is that Ethan Glover spared him because he ratted out the Southern Ambitions conspiracy to, excuse me. Eris spared Ethan Glover because he ratted out the Southern Ambitions conspiracy to King Eris. So Eris spared him, threw him into a dungeon, and Ned rescued him from the dungeons when he entered King's Landing. Thoughts? Someone told. Someone always tells. Yep, yep. I mean, it's, I it's Chloe nailed it right there. It's it's fascinating that I mean, Eris is a, is the Mad King. He's obviously not well upstairs, but at the same time. After he imprisons Brandon and kills Brandon and Rickard, he immediately calls for the deaths of Ned and Robert. Why would he do that unless he had some sort of information, information that could, that indicated that there was something more afoot than simply Brandon coming down and calling for Rhaegar to die, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair interpretation. I mean, I don't think Ned and Robert did know. Right. But I see if Eris had learned about the conspiracy from Ethan, he would probably jump to the conclusion that they did. And- even so, there's so much further. I mean, so many smart, brilliant people have actually talked about some other versions of this, which King Littlefinger comes to a conclusion that's kind of wrought with some of Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros' theories on what happened with Rhaegar and Lyanna. We get the story of the Night of the Laughing Tree. We get all these little snippets that we have to push together from the Rebellion to make sense of it. And it also makes you think, so what did happen why did Lyanna suddenly get crowned Queen of Love and Beauty the day after she was knighted the Laughing Tree, the day after Ares had sent out men to go find her, or sorry, find the Knight of the Laughing Tree, who was Lyanna? Uh, it, it really just pieces all these little bits together. And with all of that happening on top of the Ethan Glover, it all clicks into place. Yes, it really yeah. does. I agree with both of you. I think that's a, a nice little theory explains multiple things at once, which is what I love about theories, that it can explain why is Ethan alive, why did Eris uh, specifically target Ned and Robert, uh, and uh, why he went al along with uh, with Ned to the Tower of Joy. Yeah. So, uh, agreed across the board. Um, little bits of foreshadowing that we get in this, in this chapter as well, other than the obvious big dogs. We get, I think, Martin laying some kind of tonal stylistic groundwork that he comes back to again with Jamie's Weirwood Stump dream. These two scenes, I think, have a lot in common. There's the, again, the lush, vivid, almost psychedelic imagery that you don't really see in most chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. There are the themes of duty and protection and death that come up in both cases when Jamie is like, should I fight with 
Brienne? Should I follow Cersei for sex? You know, and he's being confronted by uh, the people he betrayed during Robert's Rebellion. Those people, of course, being Rhaegar and the Kingsguard Knights, who show up in Jaime's Weirwood chapter as they do in the Tower of Joy chapter. And you get the shimmery, shadowy swords in both. Ned's companions in this chapters, uh, this chapter is, are wielding shadow swords. And Jamie and Brienne get these kind of weird Lightbringer-esque swords in Jamie's dream. So, as always, who knows if Martin had that scene in mind at this point, but I think when he was writing that scene in The Storm of Swords, I think he was like, this is, I'm making this like the Tower of Joy sequence. I'm, yes. I'm going, going back to that well for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, George returns to the imagery over and over again. It returns to it deliberately, in my opinion. It's not just something that just shapelessly moves to the narrative. It's intentional on George's sure. part. And it, it's good imagery too that helps to indicate how helps indicate how these characters flow through the narrative and also again continuously builds up the nobility, chivalry, and romanticism associated with these knights of the King's Guard. Yes, indeed. Speaking of Jamie, the drums of war are beating. We uh, hear in passing that he has gone back to Casterly Rock to join Tywin. We will learn next week in Catalan 7 that they are mustering their forces there. And this is really the build-up to the War of Five Kings proper when uh, Jamie and Tywin invade the Riverlands with their separate armies. So you can see Martin laying the foundation for that here. On a more kind of substantial character level, as always with Ned and Robert scenes, I think you can see foreshadowing of the Davos, of the Davos and Stannis dynamic. Specifically when Ned says to Robert, why, why are you keeping me hand if you're not going to listen to me? Compare that to Stannis telling Davos in the Storm of Swords, well, why did I make you hand if not to speak? When right. Davos asked to speak. You can see those as, as like perfect little, uh, clocked in inversions of each other. Like as, as, you know, Robert wants Ned to be hand but doesn't really listen to him. Stannis wants Davos to be hand specifically to listen to him. So I think you can see an interesting kind of both parallel and contrast between those two dynamics there. Uh, one more small thing is that the appeal that Robert makes to Ned here, which is, you know, you need to move on from the death of your men and make peace. This is the exact same appeal that Varus will make to Ned. <laughs> this is the same appeal that Varus will make to Ned in the Black Cells. You need to make peace with, as Ned says, the woman who, you know, attacked my men and, uh, you know, murdered my king and crippled my son. And Varus says, yes, you have to make that peace. This is a question Ned is always being faced with. Are you willing to make peace with these people who have done objectively horrible things for the greater good? Yeah, are you willing to trade a lie for the safety of children? Yep, exactly. It's that same theme in uh, in Grinning Through All Ned's chapters. But of course, you know, there's a certain little bit of foreshadowing that comes up in this chapter. A theory you might have heard of kind of comes into play with the Tower of Joy wait. and the Bed of Blood. It's very obscure. Wait, wait, wait. Is I this, don't know if you know about is it. Is this the twin theory? Oh my god. Yes, this is that both Daenerys Targaryen and Mira Reed were up there in the tower with Lyanna. Yes, Lyanna. all right, I know this, this theory. Ob- I quit objectively this canonical. Understandable. I literally quit. No, but ser- seriously, of course, this chapter does more work than almost any other for R plus L equals J. As we've said, there is the implication that the Kingsguard were there for a reason that's not just protecting Rhaegar's squeeze, that they are protecting who they consider to be the heir to the Iron Throne. Yeah, it's all of these threads finally pulling together in 10 penultimate yep. Ned chapters leading up to this big climax that, of course, the storm of blue rose petals has been rushing the books. The biggest secret, it's right across the screen. But if you blink, you'll miss it, right? Promise mm-hmm. me, promise me. Speaking of R plus L equals J, that takes us to the Tower of Joy, because as iconic as a scene as this is, it might not really be the truth. At least not 100%. 
we're, we're terming this section separating the reality from the dreamscape, the Tower of Joy, kind of a metal title for this sort of theory discussion here. Um, because in 2002, George R. R. Martin responded to a fan who was asking about the Tower of Joy by saying, you'll need to wait for future books to find out more about the Tower of Joy and what happened there, I fear. I might mention, though, that Ned's account, which you refer to, was in the context of a dream and a fever dream at that. Our dreams are not always literal. So that is a fascinating quote because I think so much of the imagery that is bound around the Tower of Joy and has influenced a lot of a lot of great artwork in the fandom is based around Ned's fever dream. So it's not the actual reality of what happened at the Tower of Joy. Now we can, you know, as independently establish that Ned and his companions did indeed fight the Kingsguard at the Tower of Joy. The Tower of Joy is a real place because it is in the lands of ice and fire. Eight men, five of Ned's and the three Kingsguard died there. Stop with your stupid, ugly theories about Arthur Dane survived and is now Corn Halfhand or some bullshit like that. Lyanna died there too. Howland Reed saved Ned Stark from being killed by Sir Arthur Dane per what Ned told Bran as recorded in Bran, Bran 3. But what about the rest? The action? What about the dialogue? Yeah, the call and response sentence finishing rhythm of the conversation, as gorgeous and kind of throwback-ish as it is, that doesn't really feel realistic. It seems likely to be kind of an inflated product of Ned's memories and the fever itself working away at his brain. Yeah, it's interesting how the language is framed. Eliana from Girls Gone Canon, The Love of My Life and I, uh, we discuss in our Uttered 10 episode, there's this iambic and troic nature of this passage, right? It kind of folds back to that kind of sound on the syllables of to be or not to be. So it goes Mm -hmm. from somewhere like our knees do not bend easily to more iambic with now it begins, now it ends. It's a very interesting shift Hmm. in poetry and rhythm. Yeah, that's a great point. It has... As you, you know, it's alluding to kind of Shakespeare and to to the older Arthurian stories, but what it's not representing is, you know, a direct conversation between a bunch of people, most of whom are exhausted and irritated with each other. <laughs> like, you know, this is this is not quite how that probably played out. This is how the the story of it plays out. How how long did Gerald, or was it Hightower, or was it Went who was sharpening his sword? It was Went. It was Arthur Dane. Went was sharpening. Oh, his sword. Okay, Went, yeah. it was Went. How long do you think that Went was sharpening his sword? Was he just sitting there waiting? Weeks. They're going to show up any second now, guys. I'm going to look so cool when they come around that corner and I'm sharpening my sword. Yeah, it's not not quite realistic. It's it's much more fantastical. The other one I've wondered about if it's realistic or not are the, uh, the, the graves. Building eight graves with a crying baby right there. And everyone's kind of exhausted and bloody and injured and heart sick. Right. Did he really? Did Ned really do that? I'm thinking of when Catelyn wanted to bury the men in the Mountains of the Moon who died in the Klansman attack, but everyone told her that's completely impractical. We have to go. Part of me wonders whether that might have happened here or not. What do you guys think? I guess it's possible. I mean, in my in my opinion, I I agree that it's one of those moments where you're like, I don't know if that would actually work out in this situation. You know, uh, Ned probably suffered some wounds or at least was exhausted after fighting these guys and emotionally exhausted after witnessing witnessing his sister die. And of course, then taking on the whole weight of having to claim a bastard as his own and realizing what that when coming back to Catelyn is not going to be this happy encounter when she went he comes back to her at River Run. Um, I, I do think it's mm-hmm. possible because 
It's brought up later in the chapter about the Cairns being built on the ridge, and it's outside yeah. of the dream itself. But again, that's a good point. I think we're in a poss- we're in a realm where memory and emotion are interweaving with reality and creating a patchwork of kind of false and true memories for Ned. So I can definitely see Ned still fixating on the, the emotions associated with the Tower of Joy and then imagining that he had built the Kerns there. I do think the men were buried there. I mean, obviously, Barbary never received her husband back from the war. So we have to assume that they are all buried at the Tower of Joy. Whether there was Kerns built, built over them, that's an open question, I think. Yeah, I I would love to get the information on the Cairns. Like, I would just love a straight up answer because it's one of those things in A Song of Ice and Fire that leaves me, I don't know, it leaves me very 50-50. It's something I don't 100% think happened, but I don't think, I don't think it's like there's eight people, well, whatever, however, however many maths, the math of the people. I don't think that the, there's that many people walking around alive from the Tower of Joy, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there were one or two. I don't know how it would be introduced into the main narrative. It probably wouldn't survive me if one to two people besides Ned and Howland did survive. But at the same time, I just don't. It's not probable. Maybe the Dornish Sands buried them, but eight cairns, they took that tower down hand by hand. What was it? A a loft? A one bedroom? A studio? (laughs) Like what's going on with this tower? Rhaegar, you are a crown prince slash almost king. Like, you need to step it up to MTV Cribs level. And with that, that about wraps us up for A Game of Thrones at 10. Uh, thank you all, everyone, so much for listening. And thank you so much again, Chloe, for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me again, you guys. I had a blast. Where can we find you out there in the, the wide world of the fandom? You can find me on the internet as at Lizen Arbor on Twitter and lizenarbor.tumblr.com to read up on any analysis, meta, and theories that I've written. And of course, you can find me at my podcast, Girls Gone Canon. We are on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Acast, I don't know, anywhere, pretty much anywhere. And I can't wait until November, mid-November here. We're coming up on it for Fire and Blood with you guys. Yeah, it's going to be so much fun to have you and, and see you, have you, and to have you there with us and see you. Sir. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it, we had such a blast with you having you on here today. I, I learned stuff. Maybe you guys learned something, probably not, because you guys are already experts on this chapter. But definitely this chapter was a fantastic um, place to have you and to... We're always pleased to have you and, uh, God, I gotta stop saying that. And we're always pleased <laughs> that. <laughs> Those mantras, man. Oof. Jeff, try it again. Yeah, thanks so much for <laughs> We're screwed. We're screwed. We are fucked. This outro is fucked. Okay, you got this, Jeff. Just think about how you hate me. Thank you so much, Chloe, for coming on. We had such a blast talking about Editor 10 with you, and it's we're so excited that we're going to be able to hang out for real and in person uh, at the end of this month at the George event in Jersey City. And again, if you guys are interested, we'll have more information about the YouTube channel, the time where we're going to be doing it, and different things like that. But thank you, thank you, Chloe. I mean, let's let's focus on you for a moment. Thank oh. you so much for coming on. It was awesome. <laughs> Thanks so Damn much. Damn straight. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. You can check out our Patreon if you have not already at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. 
Personally, you can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So join us next time as we return to the Eerie for our first, our very first trial by combat in a Game of Thrones Catelyn 7. Going to be a fun, fun chapter. Yet another great Catelyn chapter. Yet more gorgeous Vale world building. Going to love it. Going to be great. So thanks for listening to us, and we will see you guys next time. Thank you all again.